0: There's your theme. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks.
1: Hey, this is Charlie McCarran, and you're hearing the sounds of the backyard I grew up in. I'm kind of on a little intermission in my Composer Quest world tour. I just finished traveling all around the northeast part of the U.S. And I'm back in Minnesota, preparing to go on a plane trip to Los Angeles, and it's nice being out here, hearing these owls and wind, and it finally feels like fall weather.
2: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome aboard Spirit Airlines flight 323 with service to Los Angeles. We look forward to getting you there as soon as possible. So, as you come aboard and find your seat, please step out of the center aisle.
3: Los
4: Angeles. Let's take a peek here. How about the uh, winds are out of the east, about five miles an hour, ten miles
5: to this probably cloudy skies? A little bit yeah.
1: Well, I'm here in LA with Candy Emberly, who is graciously. Offered to host me here. Oh. And uh, so Candy, you might remember from an episode titled, Follow Your Dreams. (laughs) Follow
2: your dreams! (laughs) Yeah. I think I may have said that. (laughs) Yes, yeah, a few times.
1: (laughs) Because we were talking about the ASCAP Expo and... Yes. Like, how every speech eventually just ended up being...
2: Follow your dreams. All your dreams. Yeah.
1: So, it seems like you have followed your dreams. (laughs) How about that for a segue? Okay. Uh, Because, well, last when we talked, you were just kind of at the beginning of your UCLA extension program for film scoring, right?
2: Yeah, I think I was just starting it. And at that time, I think I was still really focused on the idea of film because it was the most transferable from my theater skills, I guess. And I was looking for something that was a more financially viable career path than <laughs> theater in the Twin Cities, as as much as I love theater. Um, but then, in that program, I I took a class about writing for games. And it was just sort of the basics of, like, here's how adaptive audio is different and how to make loops and that sort of stuff. And I started to realize that I was a lot more interested in that challenge of composing than the challenges of film. And then I also started to realize, like, hey, I know a lot of game developers. (laughs) I know a lot of people who, you know, they're maybe working at a company, but they're really passionate about the idea of making an indie game. And then I started realizing I just fit in with those people a lot more. And it's very easy for me to talk about games that I love and games that I'm playing, and much harder for me to talk about films that I love or have recently seen. So it, sure. it just sort of became obvious <laughs> that, that that was the path I should be taking. So I found my dream. <laughs> <and> I <followed. laughs>
1: That's cool. And yesterday when I got here, you were at uh, Game Sound Con?
2: Yes, Game Sound Con.
1: What is that all about?
2: Um, Game Sound Con is a really interesting conference. It's run by Brian Schmidt, who's also... President of Gang, the Game Audio Network Guild. And it's a it's very unique in that it does a good job of tailoring to all levels of people, I think. So for people who are just trying to start and figure out what game audio is, like the basics of what you need to do to make it, they have an essentials track that covers all of that stuff. And then they have a pro track, which is usually a lot of deconstruction of stuff that's recently out into the world so like how we did the music for witcher three was was one of them and then for people who are just like you know i don't i don't get anything out of the seminars anymore there's actually really good networking and it's a it's a great place to see people or present material that you want to talk about
1: do you have tips for people who want to go to these kind of conferences on like what What should they do and what shouldn't they do as far as, like, networking?
2: Well, they should go. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I mean, as far as networking in general, like, I feel like it's it's better to approach it as let me make some friends than, you know, grasp for work. For me, I I feel like it's been more effective to approach it as a long-term sort of slow-burn goal. I don't go with the intention of, I'm going to get a job out of this one. Some people do that, and I think for some people that works. Um, I don't think I have that specific kind of personality.
1: And it's it's kind of tricky because someone can't judge by your personality, like, necessarily how your music's going to (laughs) sound.
2: Yeah, and people do look each other up, you know, afterwards. Yeah, I think it's more like, based on your personality, they will or won't give you a chance. I guess sure. other just very general networking, I guess, for people who haven't been doing it is ask questions and listen and um you know, talk about yourself some but act more interested in the other people or, you know, actually be interested <laughs> in the other people. I you know, keep it genuine. But people love it when you ask questions and they they get more engaged and then they'll ask you questions too and, and you can talk and that makes for much better relationships. ...than trying to run around and tell everybody why they should pay attention to you.
1: Yeah. So, So you're working on a game right now. I am. What's that one about?
2: The game is called Legacy. It's being developed by Nate Austin. It is a turn-based strategy game. It's got a feeling of wizards and, you know, swords and shields... ...and that kind of level of technology... But instead of the, the very Tolkien-esque setting that, that a lot of people gravitate towards, it's more Americana fantasy. So you find things like raccoons that have had all sorts of creepy alterations to them and now they're monsters. And as far as the music goes, I'm I'm trying to incorporate elements of American folk music.
1: Cool. What kind of instruments are you using?
2: Well... As a lot of projects are, you know, when you're young and hungry, it's low budget. So I, I decided I wanted to focus on things that I can play and things that I can record myself. So that means a lot of strings. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and as part of the folk element, Nate and I talked about using mountain dulcimer, oh. just because it has a very like, it has that very American feel. It lends itself to folk, but it can it can do other things too. You know and it's not not as in your face as guitar that's my feeling anyway yeah yeah <laughs>
1: a little thinking, more magical than guitar
2: yeah i think so mm-hmm.
1: have a question chain going on in the podcast from guest to guest you okay know? and my last guest Whitaker Trebella I don't know if you knew Wit from Stillwater High School
2: I don't think so
1: Candy and I went to high school together if you didn't catch that um,
2: secretly Wit is whistling or er, is listening now <laughs> secretly Wit is listening now and thinking that horrible person I remember.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I doubt anyone would think that about you, but, yeah, so Witt lives in Chicago, and okay. he also does some game composing. Cool. And and he was wondering, do you see a style transition in video games happening? Or is there, like, a, a style that you think is coming in the future? Oh.
2: That's a good question. The things that I think about a lot are how, you know, for our generation, all of that 8-bit stuff is just, like, gold. But what's coming? Actually, I do feel like there is a a trend, and I don't know if this has already hit or if it's just something that I notice more because it's also what I like to do, but I think small live ensembles is starting to be a real thing and, and overtaking the appeal of big orchestral stuff. I think there's definitely a place for big orchestral stuff, and um, part of it may be fueled by smaller budgets of indie games, you know, you want a smaller ensemble if you're recording live, but I think there is more and more interest in in live stuff. You know, you look at stuff like um, Dear Esther, you know, and it's really like great string writing. Sky, which Dren McDonald did the music for, it's just this great small ensemble. There's strings and bass clarinet. I do feel like maybe that's finding a a niche and getting more popular small live ensembles
1: well i i wonder if it's partly works well with games because it is like a little more intimate sounding
2: it is yeah
1: and like if you're thinking back to nostalgia of like chiptune music it's like Mm. very intricate like single line melodies going maybe versus like a huge wash of orchestral sounds
2: yeah that's true so it may be related to that, because, you know, with, like, Gypsy and stuff, they're following, just by imitating the style, you end up following old restraints, where they had, like, three square waves and a noise track to deal with, and I think they could only ever actually have three of them playing at a time, so you have a lot of counterpoint. Yeah. You know? and which... And some, yeah.
1: some of that, like, you can't get away in, with in a film as much, maybe, as you could in a video game.
2: Yeah, and part of that, I think, is people who play video games really love the music in the games. But there's a very present feeling in film music right now that music should be invisible. You know, you shouldn't notice it, you shouldn't hear it, and, you know, there are not a lot of great melodies being written in film music now because of that. And I just, I don't think that people have that same idea in games. I think they want something that excites them that you know contributes to the the feeling of the game in a very deep way and something that they can listen to outside of it
1: yeah so. do you have a question for my next
2: guest um how do you feel about the idea that a composer should be able to do anything versus the idea that a composer should find their voice and focus on a single kind of style or niche
1: Mm -hmm. do you feel like you have a specific style
2: i think i'm starting to settle into one but i went through a period of trying to write all sorts of things in different styles to show that i could and i don't think that was necessarily bad because it contributes to your development you know it works on your skills but in terms of trying to get work now, I feel like I really am just starting to hone in and focus on stuff like these smaller intimate ensembles, lots of strings, and sort of this dark, moody area of music and i think I think for me, I'll be happier focusing on that, so
1: cool i I want to ask you about your film job Okay. that you, you... So, I was just looking at your IMDb page, <laughs> and it's, like, insanely impressive of these, oh. all these films you've worked on.
2: Oh, thank you. It's nice.
1: Star Wars and yeah. just everything. <laughs> Simpsons, Family Guy. Um.
2: Star Wars is definitely the one I'm happiest to <laughs> have on there right now, I'm not going to yeah. lie. Um, yeah, so I... I I do work in music preparation, which most of the time for me means making individual parts for players. We get a score from either a composer or an orchestrator, and a lot of the time it's already in a program like Sibelius or Finale. But then we'll take the information from that score and say, like, if I'm going to do the flute parts, you know, I make flute one, flute two, flute three and design it so that it's easy to read and that's the bulk of it. Other sort of music prep can be synthestration. So we're doing mock ups for people, which I don't I don't do any of. Sometimes I do what's called a MIDI takedown where people send in their mock-ups and then we clean up the MIDI data and quantize it and put it into a score and make the score legible. Um and then that usually will Go on to an orchestrator to sort of double check because you know you might have stuff that's just like, low brass. <laughs> yeah, you know you can't make a low brass part and give it to the the section, so they'll they'll sort out how exactly they want it to go. And then also, I, I don't do very much of this anymore, but I used to the actual physical production of parts.
1: For something like, like in Star Wars: Force Awakens, what were you doing on that project?
2: Oh, that's exciting. <laughs> It's partially fast paced exciting because John Williams still writes everything by hand. Oh, and wow. um you know, he wants somebody from the office to pick it up personally because he doesn't want to send those off with, you know, a courier. So somebody picks up his music and then we make photocopies and scans of it and um there's some things that we do to the actual physical pieces of paper because he he conducts from his sketches he doesn't conduct mm. from a final like typeset score so we want to rush to to get all of that processing taken care of and then send him back his originals <laughs> <laughs> so there's there's that kind of rush and he's also he's prolific you know he he writes so fast so working on star wars was just every day more music for star wars and it's exciting cuz i think like everybody grew up just thinking John Williams, John Williams is the best. Oh my god, I'm working for John Williams. <laughs> <laughs>
6: yeah.
2: Um, but he also he writes he writes more challenging music than most other composers in film right now. It's more challenging for the players, but also actually more challenging to lay out. So when you have all of these notes and things that don't just fit into boring four bar phrases, you have to really think to make it look good on the page to make it as easily absorbable as possible so that people can sight read this stuff cuz they're not they're not having practice sessions yeah <laughs> so you have to how do m- everything you can to prevent mistakes from being played
1: yeah how much do you have to just go with something that's sight readable versus like like if there's some weird rhythm or something i suppose you just have to stay as true as possible.
2: That actually depends on the client a little bit. For example, some composers do not want us to change enharmonics. So we have house styles about how to spell stuff to make it easier to read, or, you know, how not to spell stuff. And sometimes people are very adamant about keeping their spellings or the way that they name a chord which may or may not be conventional, but it's how they like to express it and the players that they repeatedly hire already understand it. So in that case, it is easier for them to understand because it's what they know. But there are there are a lot of things where we simplify the way rhythms are shown. So in terms of how you break out a dotted rhythm and have a tie or not have a tie and and which beats you want to show... But a lot of it comes down to making sure that the phrases are really obvious and distinct on the page. So, you know, concert music, a lot of it you'll sort of cram to to fit as many measures on a line without a whole lot of care to where the phrase falls. And they have all this practice time and they're studying their piece and, and also, you know, there's less money and in the printing of that music than other things, so they want to save paper. Um, But we spread stuff out. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, we're very attentive to where phrase beginnings and endings are.
1: Do you feel like you're gleaning a bunch of styles from these composers as you're doing this work, or is it kind of just you just have to quickly get it done and you don't like analyze it that much or
2: a lot of it is quickly getting it done and not analyzing it um when i do a midi takedown i'm doing a lot of listening to make sure that the way i clean up the midi is accurate to how they want it to sound so i get to think a little more about it then i do pick up on some stuff like trends in how certain people will write for various kinds of instruments or um orchestration-wise you start to notice some people will have all of the horns playing the same thing or something and some people like to really do a lot of layered horns and it's so so I see I see a little bit of food for thought and like oh here are some different ways to do it that people are regularly doing but I don't I don't get to spend as much time as I would like just thinking about it cuz we just need to get the work done and people are also very concerned with speed because with union rates you're getting paid by the page and not by time. So the faster you do it, <laughs> the more money you're making.
1: Well, how does someone get a job like yours? sir?
2: That's a great question, because I actually knew about the place where I work before I worked there. And at the time, they didn't list any job openings. And I also, by nature, I think, have been too shy about that kind of stuff like I never just reached out to somebody to see do you have internships but I eventually through a friend met somebody who worked there and this person started talking about oh yeah we just finished with an intern who was doing really well and we hope they come back after they're done with school or something and I said oh you have interns. (laughs) they said, yeah, yeah, we do. And I said, well, how does that work? Like, do you have to be a student or anything? And they said, well, you know, you just come in and help out some, and if they like you, they'll have you do more. Or it, and it was funny. It, it seemed very unstructured, and it is very unstructured. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I managed to sort of talk my way into, yeah, yeah, can I, can I just come in and help a little bit next week or something? And, and basically they just had me scan some old music. I just stood at a copier all day and scanned for three days. And then I finished scanning <laughs> <laughs> the project that I was on, which was like an entire old MGM musical. <laughs> and um, I talked to the other people who were working around me. I said, so do you want me to come back? And and they said, well, go talk to the the boss over there. Tell him you you finished this project. Does he want you to come in and do another one and so i went over there and i said hey you know i i finished this thing i'd really love to come back and help out some more is there anything else that you guys need help with and he said do you want a job (laughs) (laughs) and i'm trying not to freak out on the outside because for a couple years i've been trying to figure out how do i get in this place and suddenly it's all just happening and i was i was incredibly lucky i think it was just the perfect timing. They needed somebody in the production aspect of things, and you know, I had just I'd shown up, I'd done the work. I didn't act like you scanning showed. was boring, <laughs> you yeah. know.
1: You showed that you had scanning skills. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I showed that I had the temperament to like do whatever. Yeah. I think, and then they started training me in on the the stuff that they actually do for printing and assembling, and and then over time. I sort of made it known that I was really interested in doing copying. And yeah, I tried to frame it in a way that wasn't like, I'm in a hurry to get out of printing. Mm-hmm. And I did. I really liked, I really liked being there. So I wasn't in any hurry. But I had a goal that I wanted to work towards. And um, every now and then I would ask something about how they do certain things or what I need to be able to do that job. And I would work a little bit on my own to... To build that up, and one of the things is I've always been a PC person, but they are all Mac. Like, everybody has to be on Apple OS. So at some point I ended up buying the computer, and I was like, I'm prepared. (laughs) You know, like, I can do this. And after about, I think it was after about a year or so, they trained me and another person in on Finale. I was already really good with Sibelius. I've been using Sibelius since version 1. But, again, it was timing. The other girl and I were very lucky and and had a lot of training on Finale. And for a while, I was sort of back and forth between the two places, and now I'm 99% of the time I'm a copyist. Every now and then I help with production. But that's a very long answer to your question of how do you get in, but I think a lot of this work is who you know. And I would say, don't be like me. Don't be afraid to reach out and just ask, do you have internships, or can I come in and take a tour and see how you do things. Or can I meet with somebody and ask for a little advice on how I get here? You may be met with nothing because people get so busy and they, you know, they're filtering out anything that isn't the work right now. But if you check in once in a while, you know, try a few times, if you hit the right timing, then you can find your way in. But you should, you should definitely know at least one major engraving program before you really try to to go in. You should at least know how to do the basics in it.
1: Yeah. Do you see yourself staying in L.A. for a while?
2: I think so. I really love my job. And since moving to L.A., I've been actually able to support myself with only musical work, which was my big goal, right? Leaving the Twin Cities and shifting away from theater. Because I was doing completely unrelated work and it really stressed me out and i felt very divided in my focus and so it's hard to imagine other places number one where i can do the work that i'm doing like music copying there are not a lot of music copy houses around and there are a lot of playing opportunities and and since it attracts so many composers you know there's a lot of work for instrumentalists who want to record but it is you've
1: been doing some of that
2: yeah yeah I record myself playing viola and sometimes violin at home. I do a lot of sweetening for people, you know, where they have samples and then they just want some tracks mixed in to help make it sound more real, or if they have solos that they want for strings. I do that. And sometimes I go into a a studio with an ensemble and record that way. So those opportunities are here and I like it. But I don't like the city of LA itself very much. I'm not keen on how spread out it is, how much traffic there is, or, like, the pollution, the segregation. And there is some element of, you know, I guess I have this theme right now of, like, focus and not dividing too much. I feel like, on the one hand, you can do anything you want in L.A., as long as you're willing to drive to it, right? You can find what you want to do and you're passionate about in your spare time. But on the other hand, there is everything in L.A. and people are doing all these crazy things they're like oh man you have to do this you have to do that and it's gonna take me an hour and 20 to drive there because (laughs) (laughs) and then you have the guilt of like oh no I should be doing it and I'm a terrible person for just hating traffic that much
1: (laughs) (laughs) it's interesting coming here after being in New York yeah because I just like the fact that it's all on an enclosed island and the subway system is great so you can just like you don't really get lost, because it's an island. You can just... in Manhattan, anyways. Yeah. And here, it's, like, just so sprawling and just...
2: Yeah. It, I mean, I've only been in New York once. It was briefly. But I do remember the subway system being great. <laughs> <laughs> and you hear about that, too. Like, everybody takes the subway. But in L.A., oh, <laughs> public transit is terrible. And... um and people also have weird identities about their cars. Like, I think anywhere there's some level of personal attachment to what kind of car you drive. But here, it's dialed up to 11. Especially when you get into the entertainment industry, it's a it's a status symbol. And it's a game that you end up playing even if you're trying to not play it. Hmm. You know, people see you a certain way, maybe. like
1: <laughs> Weird, I would... <laughs>
2: Yeah, I think we talked about my dirty car. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't care about washing my car, and most people are really intense about getting their car washed regularly so that it's shiny and pretty. <laughs> like, <Whoa. laughs> and um, lately, I can sort of put out this excuse that makes me look good of like, well, we're in a drought, and that's one thing that I can avoid doing. <laughs> <In the water. laughs> but, oh man, weird. And, and to be fair, I'm not. I'm not really running around with the crowd that it makes as much of a difference, but that culture is there, and I think it seeps into things. Hmm. There's definitely still the idea that public transit is for quote-unquote poor people and not, like, a thing that's good for society. <laughs>
1: hmm. I don't know. I don't, I've don't. i never thought about that in Minnesota. Like, just, it's kind of like if you're living as an artist in Minnesota... You're probably not making that much money. Yeah. And so, therefore, like, I don't think anyone expects you to have a nice car or something like that.
2: And there's so much, like, salt.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no one can have a nice car in Minnesota. <laughs> yeah, in there's general. only so
2: nice you can get. In and the you winter. don't. Yeah, and there are cars that you don't want to drive because it gets treacherous. <laughs> huh. Yeah, but I think, like, a rich person could get on the train and they don't care you know, they could take the light rail and it's a perfectly acceptable option. But I think some people here feel like if I take public transit, people are going to wonder, like, am I not making my car payments? Hmm. So there is an identity associated with it. Also, there's a lot of stigma about like, oh, public transportation is so dangerous here. The buses are really dangerous. Or, you know, the expo line is already trashed within a few weeks after it opened. And I internalized some of that fear because I heard it so frequently, and then one day it happened to be convenient for me to take the Expo Line downtown, and I thought, you know, I want to try it. And it really wasn't that bad. <laughs> like, like it it wasn't any dirtier or nastier than, than the light rail in Minnesota. Like, yeah, public transit can get dirty, and, and it happens. You have tons of people coming in and out of it every day, every hour. But I think there's just a stigma yeah. that's... Really strange. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I didn't think we'd start talking about like cars and public
2: transportation
1: <laughs> in this episode, but the Transit yeah, quest. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> well, Candy, um, really appreciate you again hosting me here. And
2: Absolutely.
1: Thanks for the chat.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate being on your podcast. Yeah,
1: it's fun um. hearing what you've been up to.
2: Can I ask you a question? Sure. What are you most excited about on this world tour?
1: Ah, well, okay, I've never been to Australia or Taiwan, so those are, like, obviously, I'm really looking forward to those. Australia was, like, my childhood dream to go there. Yeah. Because of, like, kangaroos, mostly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They have the pouch. Yeah.
1: (laughs) So, we'll see how that goes. That goes, but yeah, I'm real excited for that international part of it.
2: That's good. I hope you have a great time in Australia and Taiwan and everywhere. Yeah, oh, thanks. <good>.
1: Jake Monaco. I'm here in your studio yep. in L.A.
0: <laughs> thanks
1: for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. You just gave me a tour of all your stuff here, and <laughs> it's, I don't know how many string instruments you have here, but... <laughs> uh, I'd say
0: maybe two dozen guitar or guitar-shaped things. Banjos and banjitars and baritone acoustics and electrics and all sorts of uh, other fun stuff. Um, and then a whole chest full of percussion toys and other things to bang on and a bunch of tubes that make uh, different sorts of noises, depending on what you hit them with.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it sounds like you get to do a lot of like fun comedies, animations, mm-hmm. like kids' shows, too. Yes. Uh, dino
0: Trucks and uh, Stinky and Dirty Shows specifically allow for a lot of... Creative Freedom, you know, starting out on the shows, they, they wanted a little bit of a different sound. So we actually got to spend a little bit of time developing the direction of the music, um, which was great, and make it sound a little bit more original and a little bit different than other kids' shows.
1: Yeah. How much of the time do you get to, like, use instruments that you play live versus samples?
0: As much as I possibly can. If, if I can muster it out, then I will, I'll perform it myself. <laughs> um, a lot of the percussion, um, you know, minus an actual drum kit, I'll try to, you know, incorporate in. And then any sort of guitars, bass, things like that, um, I'll definitely get in there. But, and, you know, in terms of the orchestral stuff, um, it, it is mostly samples, you know, given the, the, the tight budget restrictions. Uh, for other shows, you know, if there is a specific solo instrument or something, I will bring, you know, a player in or so that they can actually contribute because helps quite a bit. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So your name has been on like a huge amount of big movies like additional music for Frozen Mm -hmm. and the Hangover movies like all that sort of stuff. Um, Yeah. How did you get into that initially?
0: Um, I went to undergrad at the University of Richmond in Virginia. Played in a band there. And then Afterwards, I um, continued to kind of play around and bartend for a couple of years until the other band members, you know, wanted to actually have real jobs. <laughs> so at that point, I kind of needed to find a different direction. Um, and so uh, a guy that I worked with suggested that I take a look at the USC film scoring program. And I applied and was fortunate enough to get in. And that kind of started a chain reaction that led to where I'm at now. Uh, before I graduated the program in 2007, Christoph Beck was looking for a new assistant at the time, and uh, I interviewed with him and made it to a second interview, and then wound up with the job, and was with him for about eight years. Just started doing you know, assistant stuff and conforms and uh, helping out with some scoring sessions, things like that, and that eventually turned into writing some additional music and producing the scoring sessions.
1: What does that mean, producing the scoring session?
0: <clears throat> you know, if we're sitting with a... If we're working with a band or working with an orchestra, you know, kind of as a as a mentor-mentee relationship, you know, allowing me to sit there with the scores and, you know, give the notes and really kind of shape the orchestra. And, you know, he's always there and overseeing everything. But it was a really great opportunity to, to do it. But if I screwed up, there was that safety net that, that was, you know, it's, it's his thing. I mean, yeah. he's there and he's doing it. So... It was like eight additional years of schooling, really. And eventually, uh, about two years ago, three years ago, um there's just a natural progression of, you know, I started getting more things of my own, and he he was like, you know, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> You've graduated. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, you know, we're still very close friends, and uh, it's been a great
1: journey thus far. <laughs> cool. So your new movie that's coming out, mm-hmm. Keeping Up with the Joneses? Yep. Yeah, what was that like working on that... Comedy,
0: um, great opportunity because we, I'd never done a spy movie with Chris. Um, we had done a lot of comedies um, and a lot of action comedies, but there was this whole spy element that really got to do. So I was very excited to to jump right in and kind of embrace that. I'm a huge, you know, James Bond, Mission Impossible franchise fan, and so getting to be able to kind of be in that realm of you know spy, but with a Comedy flair to it was very exciting. When I got the call, it was you have five weeks to <laughs> write the score, the entire <laughs> yeah. wow. So at that point, it was kind of like uh, <laughs> okay, how do we make this work? And you know, it's it's about sixty minutes of music, which you know is not crazy for five weeks. Um, still pretty intense. I think the the craziest thing was that they're all based in New York, so. There was about three or four trips back to New York you know for for playbacks. Skype is fine, but it's always nice to be able to actually be face to face and be in the room and so I mean that was a day of but travel that, every yeah, time up. You
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow. So you averaged what like 15 minutes yeah. a week.
0: Yeah, I tried to get through as much as I could in the first three weeks. I think I ended up getting a first pass of about 80 percent of the score in the first three weeks just allowing time to then go back and revise and I always find that like as you're developing themes and as you're getting further and further into the movie, you're finding new things that are working and it's like, hey, what if we take that thing from Real Five and let's apply it to, you know, the main theme that we first hear in its most subtle version in Real One. So it's nice to be able to kind of work your way through and now let's go back and let's polish it and, you know, work on the minor details and everything. But as long as the shape and is there, the themes are there, that's the lion's share of the work.
1: Yeah. How much of the time do you like for that score for example? How much did you have to revise once you had that um <laughs>
0: uh some cues some cues stayed on their first version and there were a few cues that I think we hit version 8 or 9 on a couple of them. A lot of which were minor tweaks, it wasn't it wasn't like, you know, grand rewriting or anything, but that's um, yeah, getting there making it perfect you know making sure everybody's happy yeah so
1: <laughs> what is there a difference in like the scenes that you can get away with the first version versus like <laughs> um like what makes it a trickier scene where they they need the, those kind of revisions
0: i think it kind of depends on who has seen it at what stage in its process um you know we might find that get to a version two or three where, you know, the director and maybe the studio are happy, and then maybe a producer sees it and says, that's great, I love it, but what about playing it from this story angle as opposed to this story angle? Okay, well, let's go back and let's try to, you know, rework that, and now we go through a few iterations of that, and now we're finding this happy medium between maybe what the producers had suggested and what the director originally wanted, and ultimately, you know, like, what's going to make everybody happy? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which is challenging, but it's it's a it's a fun challenge because you know you get to really push the boundaries there.
1: Yeah, that's good. (laughs) That's cool. So, I have a question chain going on this podcast from guest to guest. Okay, Um, and my last guest was wondering, what do you think about the idea of having a unique voice as a composer versus like trying to do everything, like genre wise, or. How do you see that in your film scoring?
0: Uh I prefer to have, you know, a single unique voice. Um, not to say I always want to do comedies or always want to do animation, but I think there's something about what I gravitate towards keeping things melodic and keeping things kind of structured musically within every or I try to do it within every cue. Um As opposed to... As as opposed to, you know, maybe just it kind of being, you know, a little bit more freeform uh, composing um, through Composed, so to speak, you know. So, I don't know if that answers your
1: question at all. Well, no, yeah, Not yet. Well, so, so I'm curious about that, like, the idea of having it structured within a scene. Are you thinking, Mm -hmm. like theme wise like you
0: it's always nice to have some sort of motif some sort of nugget to grab onto for the listener you know making things where the music actually is able to stand alone by itself and make it a pleasurable listening experience um i think it's that's that's just as important as it being married to the film and supporting and telling the story that the film is telling
1: also so if someone listened to your soundtrack alone they could Kind of figure out a story, maybe (laughs) along the way. I I would hope so. Yeah, (laughs) I was thinking about that because I today I was like assembling a film score I did for Mm -hmm. the skydiving documentary, and I was like, well, should I switch tracks around and that kind of thing? But in a way, I was like, no, I kind of want to just keep it true to the. Yeah, that's
0: funny. That's that is something that I struggle with. Also, it's you know, if you're going to make a soundtrack, focusing on the storytelling aspect versus what is the optimal listening experience? Where you might have a bunch of action cues right next to each other, and then a bunch of very slow, emotional, or kind of sparse comedy cues, or whatever. You know, you know, do you
1: do you break up the order of the film in order to make it a, a make it a cooler soundtrack? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, when you, like when you have made soundtracks for your stuff, how much do you cut? from those if you're I I guess if you have 60 minutes of music for a film for example do you try and keep that all in there?
0: Uh, No, I think it depends take out anything that is maybe too repetitive you know if if one cue later in the film might be derivative from another cue earlier in the film where it's you know same thematic material um, not just that but maybe you know very similar arrangement wise if something has happened and you're trying to relate those two either finding a way, you know, pick whichever one is better and maybe drop the other one is the simplest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but otherwise, maybe even finding a way editorially to, to marry the two and, you know, putting that into one cue is also, you know, kind of nice. Other than that, yeah, just kind of cutting down on the repetition and, you know, keeping it fun and interesting because, you know, a, a, a cue that just kind of sits there for two minutes maybe under dialogue isn't as interesting musically as, you know, something that just has a little bit more shape to it.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. So... Did you picture yourself doing film scoring, like, from the beginning, from when you were in your band and that kind of thing, or...?
0: No, actually, I I knew who John Williams was when I was growing up, and that's probably it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I always loved the singer-songwriter aspect of things, and I found it hard to just write a piece of music for the sake of writing music. There was always a story behind it, which is why the, the songwriting, you know, I gravitated towards that. And... You know, Knowing how music is now married to picture and you're getting to tell a story through that it gives you a reason to write the music. Um, that's kind of what inspired me to take this route.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so do you have a question for my next guest?
0: If you could be a part of any film, past or present, which one would it be?
1: Cool. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. If, if he had to say what film was the most fun to work on score wise mm-hmm. i don't know what do you have one <laughs> <laughs> probably the muppets
0: actually just the amount of nostalgia that kind of came with that and you know growing up with muppets in space and muppets take manhattan now being able to actually be a part of a new iteration of the franchise is was really really exciting
1: yeah i i loved that movies <laughs> 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 So, yeah, what were you doing for that one specifically? Um,
0: at that point, it was more of the score coordinating, score producing with Chris, but still just being a part of it and, you know, being in the room during all the meetings. And it was just, it was great to, to be able to be there.
1: <laughs> cool. <laughs> I thought it was kind of fun seeing you composing for the the Disney animations that were, like, Star Wars told by Emoji and... <laughs> <laughs> Frozen, told by Emoji, and, yeah, could you explain, like, how that project came about? And...
0: Yeah, so, after Frozen was released and kind of became what it was, which nobody was really expecting that it was going to be as big as it was, there started to become, you know, a few more little franchise things, you know, shooting off from that, and, and then I got a call from someone over at Disney Interactive. They were developing this new As Told by Emoji series, and they were starting with Frozen,
1: The cool thing about those seems like, with each one, you incorporate the original scores from like, this you know Star Wars, Aladdin. Yeah. And yeah, how's what was that experience like trying to? It's
0: it's so much fun to be able to go back to these films and watch the film through and really get a sense of what is it about this score that makes it you know specific to this movie. So finding you know I mean making something sound. John Williamsy versus you know Alan Menkeny, <laughs> yeah. Um, and in in some of the instances, uh, we were able to use very small quotes of songs and kind of re- and work them in. Um. Coming up, I think they're doing uh, they're doing Nightmare Before Christmas is the next one that we're that we're working on. Oh, so kind that's of be fun. diving into the world of of Danny Elfman, which is you know just completely different than <laughs> than anybody else that we've worked with so far. So it's really it's a, it's a lot of fun.
1: Cool. From a music theory standpoint, like, how much does that factor into your composing? Does it, like, consciously factor in or subconscious at this point?
0: It consciously factors in when I run into a wall of where do I go from here in order to make it sound like dot, dot, dot. So, you know, if I'm kind of cruising along with, you know, this little little motif or an ostinato or something, but, you know, we need to hit something heroic or triumphant or, you know, give it some tension or something like that. And how to develop whatever that progression might be, Um, definitely go back to rely on music theory techniques. But I have to consciously do that. It's not as an innate thing for me as it is for a lot of other composers. You do have some training, but not an extensive amount. Sure. (laughs) Classically speaking.
1: Sure. (laughs) Well, it seems like just from watching clips of things you've scored, it's like especially with the comedy and animation, it all has to be like super quick turns too from one emotion to the another
0: right so how how to do that but also keep it musical in a sense, you know, like I talked about and trying to keep you know the musicality behind it all is is always a challenge but is always at the forefront of my mind, you know, keeping in mind that it's not you know it's not just for what we're seeing at that specific instance but thinking of it more as an overall arc to the cue and to the episode or to the entire film maybe even to the entire season and watching things and how they
1: develop how how about like TV versus film like doing a series of things how how do you approach that differently
0: um uh, you have a you have many more opportunities to push the boundary a little bit more in TV and see if things will work and experiment a little bit more from episode to episode. You know, there may be every few episodes of Diner Trucks, if we have a big triumphant moment that the gang has, maybe we'll do a completely different arrangement, a new reharmonization of their main, you know, friendship theme. So being able to kind of, oh, you know, this cool idea, but it's not working right now. You know what, let me take that idea and expand on it the next time we have this. So it gets a kind of backlog some of those some of those additional ideas and uh whereas with a film not that you 're limited, but you only have a certain amount of opportunities to <laughs> to yeah. do it you know or depending on what the film actually allows for you know?
1: yeah when you're switching from project to project, do you ever have the problem of melodies bleeding over or styles or or is it pretty <laughs> like segmented in your head I have definitely found
0: myself. I, you know, writing a melody or something and be like, oh, yeah, it should go like that. Wait a second. Why should it go like that? Oh, maybe because it's been written before, or, you know, it's something in the back of your mind and be like, ah, does that sound too much like whatever it might be? Yeah. Um, I, I've caught myself doing that a couple times. No, otherwise, I, I think the musical languages from show to show are different enough where I'm able to kind of stay away from them when I'm in the world of each of each show. <laughs>
1: How much do you have to like hustle to get gigs, or is at this point do they kind of come to you and
0: it I feel like it's always a hustle to you know to get something new to get some you know that next next step up the next thing that you really want to do the next person that you really want to work with because they've done something amazing you know you want that opportunity so no i'm i I'm constantly sending in demo reels or you know taking meetings because you know the more people you meet, the better your opportunity of of getting the next gig gig is.
1: Mhm. So. do you think that could happen outside LA for you at this point or is it pretty much like you want to be here for that?
0: Um I I actually like it here. It's not it's not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> um especially being able to, you know, work in the converted garage behind my house, you know, the commute isn't too bad, which is really what a lot of people have a have a problem with. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just cuz it takes forever to get anywhere. Um but uh no I mean, it's I like it here. I think it's feasible to have a career for anybody, you know, whether it be in, in New York or, you know, maybe even London. But um I think there's there are very few hubs, you know, especially in the states where you can kind of be based out of.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm finding that Minnesota has a good film scene, but it would be nice if it was, you know, like more more films with larger budgets were yeah. happening <laughs> there um but someone was telling me that like Austin is potentially becoming like a a good hub for really I guess they were talking more about game music but, yeah
0: yeah we've seen that and in Nashville too I mean there's always obviously there's a, a good scene there but I think there's been more scoring projects going on there as well yeah so yeah
1: yeah <laughs> Uh, well, Jake, I have one other tradition on the show. Okay. Um, if you're up for it, uh, <laughs> I ask guests who are on the show to come up with a intro theme for Composer Quest, the podcast. Okay. Um, and if you feel like trying something on the spot, uh, <laughs> <laughs> hmm. what would we play it on? Is the question.
0: There's got to be a kazoo around here somewhere. It's got to be the best thing, right?
1: Probably no one's no one's used the kazoo yet actually Well,
0: the, in that case
1: all right are you ready
6: yeah <laughs>
1: there's your theme
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: thanks. you're welcome. How much does the kazoo come out in your uh in your scores. Uh, it, is, it has made an
0: appearance in Stinky and Dirty a handful of times. Um, I try to fit it in wherever I
1: can. That and whistling are uh, are some of my favorites. Awesome. <laughs> cool. Well, well, Jake, thanks. Awesome. It's been great talking to you here. Thank you very much. Greatly appreciated. Yeah. Um, for people who want to check out your stuff, hmm? uh, where should they go?
0: They can go to jakemonaco.com and uh, poke around over there plenty cool. any music samples yeah <laughs> well, thanks alright thank you
2: this call is now being recorded
5: hey ringing Hey Charlie, where in the world are you? I am in Lake Balboa Park in LA. There's like dozens of cormorants on this uh, dock area. i the with a cormorant, what does it look like? Uh, it's like a duck, but um, just a little bit weirder looking. <laughs> That's awesome. There's a lot of birds here that look like they could turn on me really quick though.
4: So oh, yeah. is that just an uh,
5: influence of LA? I guess. Oh, there's a hawk too. I've seen like so many different birds. Um <laughs>
4: They're not singing any songs out there, yeah. Are you gonna interview them for supposing <laughs> <here's
5: something>. bus? <laughs> Good one. Yeah. Uh, no music, but um, maybe I'll get some sound bites to these first though. So. Well, it's been interesting being here in L.A. for the second time ever. Part of me is feeling like, why did they put the entertainment mecca in the desert? That, that was my first thought, but... I don't know, there's, I think you just have to kind of find beauty wherever you can. And right now, it's at this lake with some ducks and geese. Yeah. Jeff, I have a question for you.
4: Yes, sir, Charlie.
5: Do you think you would ever live in L.A.? You're a filmmaker, you're a man of the world would you ever move here?
4: That's a great question. Um, I don't see myself moving to L.A., at least not in the near future. Um, I don't think uh, I am interested quite yet in a lifestyle that would come with working in L.A. It's definitely something where you're in it for the long run, right? Like you're working like 12 hours a day, every day, six days a week, you know, for weeks on end for a project, and you're just bouncing from project to project. That's not necessarily right for my lifestyle right now. And I'm also more interested in being in other cities, you know, and doing independent filmmaking, that we have a different kind of location. We have different opportunities. But I, I think there's benefits that come with that. Right, like... You're doing something different, something interesting, and you're somewhere else. So it can be a small benefit to that, too.
5: Yeah. I feel like if I came here, yes, there would be a lot of opportunities, but it's kind of a small fish in a huge pond. I don't know. I, I kind of like being in the Twin Cities film scene just because, you know, you pretty much get to know everybody. Um mm. And maybe there are some of those people here in L.A. who do Hollywood movies. They they probably know almost everybody. But, I don't know. Yeah, you do really have to be committed to your work if you're going to come here, it seems like.
4: Yeah, committed to your work, committed to networking, committed to being on day after day. And I, like A lot of good things can come with that if you're savvy we got good people skills. got good technical skills. You can definitely go someplace.
5: Yeah. Well, I'm curious to talk with a few more people here. Uh, but I, I feel like I'm just getting a small slice of the life here.
4: Yeah. I mean, there's so many things going on in LA, too.
5: Mm-hmm. Well, tomorrow I'm going to be talking to one of my oldest friends, from preschool, actually, uh, Brandon Lotch. And he has been doing, like, a lot of creative stuff with video over the years. He has a YouTube channel that kind of blew up. And now he's doing, like, virtual reality games. He was kind of a big inspiration, actually, into me pursuing a creative freelance life. Because I visited him, like... Six years ago, maybe, out here, and I saw Brandon and his counterparts, like, just working out of their home, just kind of full-time, all in on this YouTube video stuff. Nice. So, that'd be fun to catch up with him. And I'm curious to ask him about sound and music in virtual reality games. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they've been doing some cool stuff with that. So we'll see what Brandon has to say about that. I'm also kind of curious to hear his perspective on becoming famous. Because he he is one of my oldest friends. And it, it's been really interesting and fun to see him like get more famous over the years with the YouTube thing. And he was on Jimmy Kimmel. It's weird to a friend who you've known for so long suddenly, like, get super famous.
4: Yeah, totally. Is he still... Well, I guess when you meet him, you will find out if he's stu- still as cool as ever. Not that he... Yeah. He's changed by his fame. But who knows?
5: Yeah. I would say, if anything, he handles it very well. He's kind of a unique personality and just kind of does his own thing. No matter what the stakes are. Um, So, yeah, that's really cool.
1: I'm broadcasting from the Audio Engineering Society's convention here in LA. there's a bunch of talks and, like, hundreds and hundreds of audio nerds. Um, yes. Yeah. And so I'm here with Toby Hulls, who I've met just at a couple times now here in L.A. Um, First
7: in right? a Mexican restaurant, downtown yeah. <laughs> L.A. <laughs> yeah. While I was stuffing my face with tasty tacos.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, so, Toby, you work for Disney Interactive? That's right. As a lead audio engineer yeah you know
7: on on my business card it says senior sound designer but i seem to wear a number of different hats so uh you know currently i'm audio directing a a game project called club penguin island uh that's half of my time and then the other half of my time is spent mixing and sound designing uh, all of the disney interactive commercials and that could be for television for youtube for theater, you know, these 30-second, 60-second commercials for Emoji or a Star Wars game that gets played before a Pixar film. So, so yeah, it's a good good mix of linear media and game audio and uh, get to bounce around lots of different genres.
1: When you come to something like this, like, what what is on your mind? Because I think you're probably listening at a different level and a different audience.
7: yeah, yeah. Well, unfortunately... Work was on my mind a lot this week while I was trying to try to take some time to do some learning as well. So I was bouncing between email and listening. But um, I think uh, when I come to these, you know, I want to learn. I want to try and gain as much knowledge as possible. And in some case, it's like let's go to a talk that is very much related to what I do so in game audio and if it's mixing for linear media or I went to a talk about loudness standards for all these different mediums that I work in so that's great but on the other hand it's like I want to learn something that I don't get to do on a daily basis like why don't I go to a talk about how to record a jazz band or yeah or hip-hop production where it's just like I can totally open my mind to something new and and maybe there's some Wonderful information I can draw from that and, and bring into the work that I do as well. So,
1: yeah. How, how much are you doing virtual reality stuff or three? You're saying you were going to maybe go do a 3D audio talk.
7: Yeah, yeah. It's it's funny <laughs> that you say that. So currently, I'm not doing any VR or augmented reality work. Um, I'm sure I will be because. It's the way of the future, so they say. Um, And uh, yeah, today I actually tried to go to a VR talk just to find out that it was sold out and my all-access pass did not actually give me access to this VR talk. I'm like, how does that work? I have an all-access pass. (laughs) So I'm still yet to experience some VR that really blows my mind. Overall, the audio just hasn't blown me away. It's it's been like, yeah, okay, it kind of sounds like it's behind me, but... I can still tell it's it's simulated, and it doesn't sound like there's really a source behind me yeah. or above me. And I know that there's stuff in development behind closed doors that's getting a lot closer to a real sort of virtual reality experience. I just haven't heard it yet. So. Yeah. But I'm sure it'll get there. Yeah.
1: Um, my friend that I'm going to meet up with tonight actually works on virtual reality games. Like, Hover Junkers is their big one. Cool. And So I'm curious to ask him about that and, like, what they've faced going through this
7: audio. Yeah. Yeah, the thing that I notice more than anything when I'm listening to virtual reality mixes, which, like I said, hasn't been many, but it's just the compression. Like, I feel, like, really compressed audio is a lot more exposed in a 3D environment because it is so spatialized and it's and it's those subtle elements that always sound the worst when they're compressed and sort of the reverbs and the, the quiet moments, maybe quiet ambiences and they are really in the forefront and I guess maybe a comparison would be how in the video world we transitioned from a CRT TV at whatever it was, 480, to... 1080p, and all of a sudden it's like you see every minute detail, and you see zits on people's faces, and you see flaws that you wouldn't see before. And I think VR maybe is opening that up, where we're hearing all of these flaws that now we have to cover with minute details.
1: Yeah. So, did you say you were working on the Emoji Disney Um, videos? I've worked on, yeah, Emoji videos, you know, like... I, I just interviewed Jake Monaco. Okay. I don't know if you've run into him. But I don't. No. He did no. the music for those like okay Star Wars as told by emoji. Oh, cool. That kind of thing. I don't know if that yeah. You been know the what? Same.
7: I've actually done I've done a bunch of mixes for that stuff, and uh, mm-hmm. because I'm based in Canada, and a lot of those are produced in the L.A. or the Glendale Disney Studio, so I will. I'm sort of become the linear media mixer for all of the disney interactive stuff which is great i love that but i don't always get to work closely with well who did the actual music for that piece and oh yeah the, but yeah the music's great on that stuff it's oh, very orchestral yeah. scored yeah cool well i would small, have liked to too. I'd be like hey we work for the same company <laughs> yeah and i've never even met you oh that's <laughs> funny yeah he i just went out to his like he has an awesome garage studio that oh cool um, yeah just, well, if you, uh, well, when you talk to him again, tell him my name. Say, hey, this is a guy that's mixed some of your work for <laughs> the emojis, and he works for the same company. You should uh, look him up on, you know, yeah. Disney roster or just send him an email. Yeah. So that'd be cool. Oh,
1: that's funny. Small world. So, Toby, do you, do you have a favorite project that you've worked on with Disney that has, mm. like, stretched you to do, like, sound design stuff that you'd, you wouldn't have thought you'd be doing?
7: Um, I would say Club Penguin Island, which I'm currently on. Um, it's the first kids' product that I've worked on. It's, it's been just a different challenge than working on other games. I guess I've been fortunate that I've worked on a variety of different styles, from you know a, a racing game, Need for Speed, to uh, actually another racing game, Mod Nation Racers, kind of like a Mario Kart-style game, to a game called Sleeping Dogs, which is mega-violent... Grand Theft Auto style, so I think it's been really fun working on a lighthearted product and thinking of ways that I can make it just silly and yeah ridiculous. Not quite as
1: like realistic, maybe or yeah.
7: You know what? My goal for it is kind of bring a, a bit of a r- realism to it. So you've got you know lush ambient sound, which is more on the realistic side, but then you've just got more zany. Foley and user interface sounds and, you know, you can pick up a fishing rod and, of course, I'm not going to make it real-life fishing. There's an element to that, but it's like a... To me, I I call it sort of the blend between Looney Tunes and Hollywood sound design. So this kind of that larger-than-life organic element that you get in a Hollywood film, but then you've got your silly zany Looney Tunes slash Hanna-Barbera style. Like so,
1: xylophone runs. Yeah, and...
7: slide whistles and boings and boinks <laughs> and dings and all that fun stuff. So it's it's a bit of a combo. And I use my voice lots. Lots of uh, sound effects using my voice or just using my voice for vocalizations and silly things. What does a penguin sound like? Well, I, I don't know, but it's yeah. maybe a maybe, uh, my voice is the voice of the player. Who knows?
1: Yeah. So for someone who is interested in getting into sound at a big company like Disney, where sure. where would they even start?
7: Well, start experimenting at home. Start in the basement. Uh, I think you need to start with a passion for it, first of all. My passion was always music. It started with a guitar and it evolved uh, as soon as I found about recording and recording my own music it just kind of evolved from there so I knew I had the passion and I was driven and motivated to pursue a career and then uh, it was just a matter of applying myself and I ended up doing a bit of schooling uh, I went to Vancouver Film School and did a, a sound design for visual media program that definitely gave me that stamp of approval that a company will look for What other than just relying on someone's experience um, if you have that like yes you went to a school for one or two years and did really well then that helps and then yeah persistence I always say uh, polite persistence is, is a great attitude to have so you know never saying no for an answer but not being annoying you know that's a tough line Find, to write exactly <laughs> Find, finding that balance where you're not being you're not pressuring or in someone's face all the time but you just kind of knocking on the back door once in a while and just reminding them like hey this is who I am and you know you have to be aggressive at times and uh, people are busy I know I I get super busy and I might have someone send me a message and geez and I'll realize it's like been a month since I responded and if they never talk to me again or get in touch then I might just forget about it but yeah a second email a month later be like hey got a question and getting getting feedback and critique from people is so great too as you're starting out Getting someone that can say, hey, your mix is good, but you should try this. Or maybe your sound design fell flat here, but this part was awesome. And being willing to take critique, too. I think that's a big part of it. Yeah. Someone told me, getting a job in the industry, don't be an asshole. Like, that was their advice. I Okay. And then someone else told me, don't smell bad. Okay. (laughs) So so don't be an asshole. Don't smell bad.
1: That's a small price to deodorant costs
7: yeah exactly I think, I think we can all manage that and then obviously the other half be good at what you do so I think you have to prove it so <laughs> not being an asshole and not smelling bad uh, having the training or experience to prove it will get you in the door but then you actually have to prove your worth once once you're there yeah. so you know and my job first job started with a month contract almost working for free but not and that one month turned into three years and then that continued to sort of snowball mm-hmm. from there so yeah and I could have literally said, uh, you know, walked away from that company when they first turned me down and be like, oh, I didn't get the job, head down, walk away. But I went back and I'm like, you guys are awesome, I would love to work with you sometime. If there's anything I can do, like you need some help, I'll work from home for free. Kind of, I was just eager. And they're like, yeah, hey, come in and we'll do a month contract, pay you 100 bucks a day or whatever it was. i like, awesome. Yeah. And like I said, that month turned into three years and that's the whole reason I still work in this industry so that's no, great. don't say no
1: yeah mm-hmm. are there any typical I guess problems that you see in people who are just starting out as sound designers like holes that people
7: fall into maybe tough for for me to say you know maybe and and I I, I find it hard just to say sound designers because I didn't start as a sound designer and I, I've never was it the approach like I woke up today and I know that I want to be a sound designer I sort of fell into it because of my love for audio for the details and just making things sound awesome and just whatever you're seeing making sure you're a great foundation for that but one thing I do notice some people get lost in the gear side of things and I need to acquire this and this and this in order to make my my mixes or my sounds sound great Mm -hmm. Or relying too much on one technique, and I think if there's anything that I've learned over the years, it's not so much the gear or the way you do it. It's what sounds what what it sounds like, and it and it feels right to you. Um, I think some people they rely on spectral analyzers, and they're they're looking for the the things instead of just listening. Because I feel like I've always gone to my ears first. Like, does it sound right? not, what do I need to do? Maybe I'll reference something else and that sounds right. Why doesn't mine sound right? So I'd like A, B back and forth and I'll rely on what I'm hearing more than anything else.
1: Cool. Well, thanks for taking the time. Absolutely.
7: It's a pleasure.
1: Our composer quest Olympics are continuing on with the fifth event, Relay Race. I put composers into teams of four to five people, and each person on the team contributed one section of a larger group
8: composition.
1: Now let's hear from Brandon Martin about his experience doing the Relay Race.
8: I got to work with uh, three other composers, uh, Mary Beth Hutland, Bob Lazo, and Amon Garner Poston. We uh, communicated our strengths to start off you know, um, just get the ball rolling, you know, what we were good at and kind of what we wanted to contribute to the group. So Bob put in his part first. Uh, He kind of got it moving for us with his kind of driving rock portion. Mm -hmm. Then Mary Beth decided to create something coming out of that. Um, for solo electric bass, which was really cool. I was up next. so what I did was I took some of Mary Butt's motifs but it on but 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 um, just took a few little things here and there and put it into like an orchestral a build-up of suspense. And then build it up to this big uh, climax and then Amon kind of brought it home, which is awesome. I was very proud of what we put together, and uh, in a limited amount of time, um, which I know everybody's crunched for time, trying to do their best. Um, So I'm really proud of what we did. Thanks for the commentary, Brandon. To
1: hear the rest of the relay race submissions, go to (laughs) composerquest.bandcamp.com. I'm here with Brandon Lodge, long-time friend. Uh, you're easily the longest friend I've had on the show. Probably, I mean, it's about we're, we've been friends about as long as we
9: could have been friends given our years.
1: Yeah, at this point. <laughs> so we met when Back we were probably four or five. Yeah, and we've been friends ever since. And despite you biting me in the arm, uh huh, <laughs> when we were in preschool. Yeah. You know, yeah, we stayed friends. We stayed friends, despite, yeah,
9: despite Charlie's mom's concerns about my, my, my violent nature. <laughs> <laughs> Which and then turned into
1: later starting things on fire and blowing them up in your backyard. Yeah, it
9: turns out it wasn't without completely. The, the, the early biting incident was not completely unfounded in the personality. <laughs> 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 in terms of not in violence towards others. But in 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 wanting to push the boundaries of uh, what's possible, I guess <laughs> or mm-hmm.
1: what's socially acceptable. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, a little backstory on you and what you've been doing. Um, so you went to college for film, mm-hmm. film and sociology, and sociology. Mm-hmm. That's right. When and but at some point you pretty much decided. I'm done with college, and I'm gonna work on YouTube. Full-time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, went,
9: to, yeah, went to USC. I started out as a film major, switched to sociology. At the time, it was interesting. I, I chose to switch to sociology. I knew that I wanted to do film, like creation type of stuff, but I uh, I wanted to switch uh, majors more because I kind of recognize. i like, at the time, everyone kept, was just starting to say they're like, "Oh, your your bachelor's degree doesn't mean anything." It's master's or bust kind of thing. I'm like, well, there's a 0% chance that I'm going to stay for a master's. So therefore, if I'm to listen to people, it means that the bachelor's isn't worth that much. So instead of focusing on the degree in the field I want, I should study things that I find interesting. So I started doing sociology and uh, found that to be interesting. But it was more of like a hobby major. And so it wasn't very difficult to walk away from it without graduating because I had no intention to ever put it on an application or a resume in any way. And so eight units shy, I dropped out of USC and uh, went up to uh, Vancouver to uh, help Nico and Sam on a movie they were working on at the time. And uh, we made that movie together with a very small crew and uh, took it from shooting all the way to post. And that's where we kind of really honed all the skills that we'd been working on through high school and college. Film-wise, we did the effects, uh, sound, music, color correction, uh, editing everything in post on that on that film. And then that was really, like, the, kind of the final exam, I guess. And so from that, completed the film. It was a direct-to-DVD movie called Dark Island. And it was uh, $50,000 budget, ultra, ultra low budget, went right to uh, the red box, like, uh, DVD distribution type oh, of things. Cool. Um, and it did well, but the problem was there was no feedback from it. And we were used to, like, making something and immediately, like, show your friends, but instead of this, was make it, turn it in, and the uh, distributor's like, oh, that's good. Do you want to make another one? And it's like, well, what are people saying? And they're like, oh, it's selling really well. It's like, yeah, but what are people saying about it? <laughs> the people that are watching it, and they're like, oh, it's selling really well. What else do you need to hear? You know? <laughs> it's like, we're <laughs> making money. Because there's nobody. nobody reviewing direct-to-DVD stuff, really? Like, or? if you Googled it, you couldn't find it online. Oh. Like, it wasn't like it existed. Like, <laughs> nobody's talking about it, but yet they were saying, they're like, we've made lots of money, let's make another one. And it's like I don't get it. This makes no sense to me. Um, meanwhile, YouTube was becoming a thing, um, had becoming a thing, and we'd been watching it. And because the biggest challenge when we were in high school was there was nowhere to upload videos, right? You couldn't put anything anywhere uh, that people could go see it. And suddenly, YouTube was just like free hosting was a concept that's completely foreign to this generation now. <laughs> like the yeah. idea that like that wasn't a thing that you was just like given to you. Yeah. Um, but free hosting and uh, distribution where there's viewers, people are watching things and it was right when they were rolling out the partner program. So people were starting to monetize content and there was nothing quite like what we wanted to make on there. And we thought, Hey, there's a lot of, we, we, we like to make these kind of like action oriented shorts and we're like, there's a lot of people on the internet that want to watch things like this. Or we think there are, because there seems to be a lot of people on the internet like us. So let's start making them. So we quit directly filmmaking to said, Hey, we're not going to make another movie. And, uh, gave ourselves a six month window to start a YouTube channel and we started a YouTube channel called the Freddy W channel. We started testing like viral concepts and the videos started taking off and they were being shared everywhere and before we knew it we had the we had the fifth largest channel on YouTube. And so yeah. so it worked out pretty well.
1: Yeah. It was like pretty inspiring to me. I don't know if I told you about this, but like when I'm, when I came to visit you guys well, maybe like Six or so years ago Um, and it was cool just seeing you guys all like living together working together full time like personally I had been doing a little bit of freelance stuff but it was cool seeing like hey these guys can actually like make a living on just doing creative stuff full time Mm -hmm. so that kind of like sparked me into like you know maybe I should try a project like this for my music and, yeah, it was cool to see. Yeah, we, we struck
9: a, it was a very unique time, and we struck a very unique balance of, like, we kept our our production needs were very, very low, and that we had we had a camera, and all you needed is a camera, and we had a computer, and it was this magical time where the software and computers had gotten fast enough and good enough that you could do anything, as long as you were willing to pirate a little bit of software. You know, <laughs> there were certain things that you couldn't quite afford, you know, so it's was like... Um, but you could you could create anything, and then, and you could create what what Hollywood was creating in terms of effects if you were smart about how you shot things. And so we tell these you know tell little minute long stories, be smart about what effects we did, and once a week we put these shorts out. And because you could you could monetize via the the ads that would be viewed this is all like common knowledge now. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and then later on, as it started to grow, there'd be brands that would be interested in, and they'd be like, hey. You guys make videos about different video games. We have a video game coming out, so make a video about our game, and we'll pay you. And it's like, oh, great, because as long as there's a concept that fits, it's creatively. There we had a lot of good hits where it was like creatively seamless, where it's like they could pay us to make it, so we could spend more on the video, and it was a video that we'd make regardless. So it wasn't like the brand wasn't getting in the way of the content anyway. And so like this perfect marriage of. The audience wins. We won because we got to do, you know, like I got to like a tank for a video or something like that. Yeah. And then, and the the brand would win because then it would market their their thing, and so
1: they're selling more copies. Everyone's happy. Yeah. Um, That's awesome. So I have a question for you: How much, like, what percent of your motivation was from like doing these crazy weird projects, and what percent was like fame? driving you guys and like trying to get a ton of views
9: um the goal from its inception is never was never fame and the nice thing i mean now you couldn't go into it and say that but at the time nobody was that famous doing mm-hmm. it and so it's not like you have like pewdiepie now you know you have these, yeah. like, these the top youtubers are huge and at the time like there was some notoriety but it's still like was just a tiny shadow in the corner of where Hollywood was, you know, and where, where, where that sort of stuff. Like, it wasn't considered, like, there was, it wasn't a term, like, YouTube celebrity wasn't a term. There wasn't, right. you know, it was, like, just starting out where everyone's, like, surprised. I mean, it was, there's a convention called VidCon that's been going on, I think, seven years now. And we started three months before the first one, and we were invited to the first one. And at that time, we were, like, the new kids on the block. Our channel had just hit 200,000 subscribers. We were the fastest-growing channel, and everyone's, like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe you guys are finding success because we thought that everyone that was successful that was going to be successful on this platform already was. Like, we can't believe there's a new channel that's blowing up. And so we were, like, the new guys, you know? And at the time, it was the first time people had any, like, serious, like, fan interaction because they sold, like, a 1,000 tickets to the thing, and people came and people wanted autographs and stuff like that, and everyone's like, I didn't think anyone would show up, you know? Like, we didn't think, like, it was the first time the numbers of views where it's like, oh, I got, yeah, I get a million views in every video, but I didn't think that equaled faces, you know? And so there's the faces. And so fame wasn't a part of it. Really, it was kind of a reaction. One it's just, I've always had like ideas that I want to create, like ideas that are in the head, in your head. And then I've always been someone that when I have an idea, my kind of creative process is that I'm very vocal about it. And I, I, pitch it to like i tell people about my idea almost because that helps make me have to make it a reality because people follow up they're like oh you had that really fun idea for a video did you ever make that and i and i dread having to say no i didn't do it (laughs) and so like i have to come up with an outlandish idea and then and then create it and then have and then and then so when people ask or they see they're like oh that was that you actually went on and made it um and then With USC, USC was a very traditional film school. Like, when I got into film school, I thought it was going to be the way we were making movies in high school, which is like, having fun and just creating, you know, like, creating, like, in backyard, like, creating Mm -hmm. some pyrotechnics, trying to make action scenes and doing this stuff. And suddenly, USC was very much like, this is how you budget out this thing. This is how you get your permits filled out. This is how you rent your dolly truck and you pick it up at, s- at 6 a.m. so you can get it to set and do all this stuff, like your grip <laughs> truck, and it's just like, this is not my style. And so it's kind of like YouTube was this venue and this, like, this like, kind of shot-in-the-dark way to monetize enough to make film my way rather than the way that USC said was the only way. Yeah. Um, so it's like, let's do it our way. Let's find a way to make it sustainable so that you can keep doing it and keep growing that audience organically. Let's control the audience so that it's not Hollywood telling you what creative you can greenlight, what creative you can't, and just, and just go for it. And so that, that all kind of was very motivating. was one just, so half getting the stories out of your head and half kind of being like, because we can, and there's never been a time before in history where, where you could make it work. And so let's, let's kind of wrest the power away from the traditional power holders
1: yeah that's cool
9: yeah and then and then fame came along with it which was fun but it's more just opens up the nice thing about that is it opened up doors like once once there was notoriety it's like hey we need people to be in the background and something you can tweet out and and people are there to help and so something it's like oh i don't know how we would have done this without i don't know how we'd executed this idea without this back end we did the road trip around the country much like yeah you're doing right now you know which is we Ask people to submit locations and resources that they could like. Hey, this is a cool place that you could shoot at. This is, hey, I've got a, I've got a bunch of dirt bikes and then uh, a hundred acres of land you guys could use here, and shot videos around that. So it's like the the audience enabled the creative, which is the way it should. So the
1: relationship became a two way relationship rather than one way. Yeah. Yeah, I had forgotten about your road trip. Um, but then when we were talking about it, I was like, "Wow, yeah, that was totally in the back of my mind." I'm sure, <laughs> like seeing like, "Oh, you could just go around, get your fans to support you on the road." Yeah, that's I, cool. I, our road trip was a weird story.
9: The little bit of back end is the, the the impetus of it was that YouTube had been greenlighting these projects. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name too many names uh, within the organization, but they've been greenlighting creative projects. And so far the track record for these projects at the time, this is in two thousand ten, was terrible. Like they, they gave hundred thousand dollars to this one guy and he just made a down payment on a house. Oh no, them, like didn't do anything. <laughs> like so like and, and, and stuff like that. And so the guy that was kind of in charge of the program was leaving YouTube to start his own company. And we went in to talk to him the day like on his on a, it was technically his last day at YouTube. And we told him we're like, We wanna go on this road trip, we want you to finance like, all we want YouTube to pay for all of the, the road trip, and uh, and we told him it's gonna be, it's gonna be, we told him it's gonna be a hundred thousand dollars, and they're like, Wow, we can't do a hundred thousand dollars. We're like, Okay, you guys can just have half of the content be yours if you give us fifty thousand dollars, and we'll pay for the other half. And the guy's like, I'm gonna push this through this afternoon. He's like, This is my last move <laughs> at YouTube, and so he greenlit it that day and sent us a check for fifty grand, which we just spent on gas the motorhome, three laptops, and some other odds and ends. And then we made twelve videos. Of which of course then we gave YouTube the the six that we thought would do the worst. So <laughs> 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 to make up for it. Which and the funny thing is we, we gave them the ones that were worse and we always thought we ha like, ha, we got we, we, we kept for ourselves the videos that did really well. <laughs> but then in the end of the day the channel did so well that the six videos ended up doing better than the Covering. Really, it actually it oh, actually man. was, and it ended up being the only project in that program that turned a profit for YouTube. Um, that's so, so awesome. So that was like early early YouTube days. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, we went on a ten thousand mile road trip in an RV and
1: got all oh, kinds of fun. Man. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's great. So you eventually then kind of went out of the video side of it. You still do videos, but now you're a doing bit. yeah doing vr games which is awesome to see yeah so yeah in 2012
9: or not 2000 early 2013 um decided to split ways with uh my partner at the time Freddie, on the the freddy w channel he wanted to go more in the route of doing web series and uh, tv shows and for me i wanted to stick to the smaller videos and kind of i was starting to get the butt itch for Game development or other things, and so we mutually decided we we're like, okay, let's just split it. So I sold my half of the channel to him, and then I started um, Stress Level Zero, which is a game development company. Um, six months into development of the, or into like we started working on ideas for games, VR suddenly came this big thing, and we became like completely intoxicated with the idea of using the medium of VR to create games that couldn't be made before. Um, specifically we went up to, we went to Valve, uh, up to their headquarters and looked at the, the, at the time their the top secret like VR stuff they were working on. Um, they, they showed us around their VR room, and their loop of demos. And then they were right at the point where they just started getting track controllers and they were confident that they were going to be able to get a product together that was going to have tracked headset and track controllers in room scale. And to us immediately we're like, that is something we can design new gameplay around. And so focused a hundred percent on that and uh, released our first game in April called Hover Junkers with the launch of the Vive. Um, It was a VR multiplayer shooter, and then immediately went into development of more games after that. Yeah? And you're saying number one multiplayer? Yeah, we were the top best-selling multiplayer shooter on Vive, I guess. Yeah.
7: I think there's there's one that's
9: free to play. There's a multiplayer game that's free to play that's probably had more people download it, but
1: best-selling. (laughs) <laughs>
9: that's that's one that costs money.
1: i <laughs> will say that. Yeah. I think costs. So I got to play your new game that oh, yeah. um is gonna be announced. Yeah. Um, but right now it's top secret.
9: Yeah, um, I just started I just started teasing what it is a little bit and we're starting to we're really loud through the entire production of Hover Junkers the entire time because VR was so new we wanted to use our YouTube channels to get the word out as much as possible. And with this game, we've been much more tight lipped. Because there's some twists and turns in it that we don't want... We don't know how much we want to tip our hand to before in advance. So we don't want to tell everybody exactly what we're doing. But it's been a really fun, uh, creative... Uh, completely different than Hover Junkers in its uh, in its direction. And so it's fun to... I mean, much like the old YouTube channel. Right? Like, we didn't want to make the same video every single week. Just be free to change things up. So it's not Hover Junkers too, which is great.
1: We've yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about, like, your experience... Doing the sound design for that, because oh, yeah. you're like you're recording all the sounds yourself, mm-hmm. and yeah. So with the YouTube videos, as always, we kind of did a little bit of everything.
9: I'd always direct and operate the camera, and then in post, I'd do the effects and um, and color correction. Um, but every so often, like we dabbled in different sound design type of things. And now that we're doing the game development, as um, we built the team out, we're a team of I think. Uh, about 12 people uh, now doing the game development. So as we built the team out, we have great programmers, artists, and concept artists and everything, Uh, but the missing link was really in the sound design, so I started picking up the slack more and more on that. Um, Because as much as it seems like right now in VR, people aren't being... there. There's Few people have the resources to push graphics forward. Even fewer are really attempting to use sound as much as I think that they can. And... I guess using the film background, we just know that how much the sound is always added to all the, all the film pieces, and how it's, 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 it's never noticed, it's never appreciated, but it's what makes the visuals pop, and it's what makes the visuals good. So in VR, it, it, there's just a plethora of things to do. So we developed a couple of systems. Uh, one is a subjective sound system, we're calling it, uh, where um, everything that makes a noise can also make a subjective noise, which is when you concentrate it, so as when you gaze on something, we have a secondary track that's synced with the first one that's faded in with the first track, and we can, we can switch that out as time goes on. So, so like for example, like the um, fan above you normally sounds like a fan, but if you gaze up into it, uh, the longer you gaze into it, it fades out the rest of the world, and you kind of feel more like a helicopter, like Apocalypse Now intro, like uh, chopping blades, stuff that's like cool. that. And so it's a system where you can play with it. So you kind of explore the scene both visually and also the sound adapts to what you're looking at based on what you're focused on yeah
1: do you think you'll keep doing the sound design uh or are you gonna hire a sound designer <laughs> eventually
9: um i like doing like, it
1: yeah there probably aren't too many like you're essentially the ceo and the sound designer i okay. am I, mean, I'm, I right now on this project <laughs> yeah well, probably yeah not too many ceo sound designers
9: yeah you're probably at a certain point i probably have to get somebody else to do it. I mean, there's still... There's a lot of... Like like all things, there's a lot of busy work that comes with sound design, and there's a lot of things, too, where it's like it'd be great to have somebody to bounce off of that is excited about the same things. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think... I, I think we should... Yeah, I think we'll probably get somebody at some
1: point. Is it weird, like, being in charge of 12 or so people? Yeah. Yeah. it's never like (laughs) like, you're you're very uh, I don't uh, what side of the brain is it creative side Mm -hmm. like coming up with lots of crazy ideas but yet there's a part of you that's also like you're willing to like go through all these hoops to like build this studio and
9: Mm -hmm. that can be challenging I don't know my, my leadership style is one that's probably not the most sustainable in the world in that I in that the way I lead is I, I've I charge out in front and run try to run faster and harder and longer <laughs> than everyone else and then people will be hopefully be inspired by this magnificent charge towards <laughs> of blind faith towards an idea. However, historically that person tends to tends to get killed in battle a lot. <laughs> <you know? laughs> so it's 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 the the leaders that I the leaders that I envy are the ones that manage to stay in back and have a whole bunch of passionate people charge forward while they manage and do smart things to keep them all safe on their quest, you know? Yeah. But I don't know how to be that kind of leader, so I charge out in front. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, um and we'll see. And eventually Father Time
1: will catch up with that yeah. one. But until then, yeah. <laughs> until That's then great. it's a it's a wonderful charge. Yeah. Um how about like one thing I struggle with is, I think, since I'm kind of a perfectionist, like, having other people working on my ideas is, mm-hmm. like, sometimes, like, Ugh. but I just want this to be exactly how I envisioned it. Mm-hmm. And I'm getting better at that, I think, but how does that pan out for It's you?
9: hard. It's all communication, you know? Communication is difficult, and then accepting that, the picture in your head always seems so wonderful and like that's how it's going to turn out and it's great when you can fully realize that. But it's not always necessarily the best version of that thing. And there are different ways to do it. And if you're a perfect communicator, you could describe this vision right away and everyone would be on the same page and you could go and create it. But nobody is perfect at that. So instead we imperfectly communicate it and people kind of go in the wrong directions. And sometimes it makes it take longer. I mean, almost always it makes the project take longer. But the interesting thing is, you also discover because they think if they're if you're all excited, you're all excited about the project, and so and people are engaged in it and they want it to be good. Then the things they're going to go off on are what they think you're describing in a way that they think is good, and it might not be quite what it is. So you you actually get to explore. It takes longer to get there, but you get to explore more possibilities and hopefully end up with something better than you would have with just your own vision. I guess. Yeah. You know, like. No, I know. You struck on both of the, both of the things. You know, I never, you never thought of the YouTube stuff or creating as far as like the fame side of things. and never thought of the business running side of things either, or like the putting a team together and all that stuff. But, but it kind of becomes it becomes necessary and it becomes uh, a fun part of the, the process as well. Yeah. That said, we it's, don't want don't want to get huge. You know? <laughs> Like the people we have right now is is enough i could I, I can't imagine more than twenty <laughs> <You know? laughs>
1: yeah yeah well, you've come a long way since the days of when we would program like graphing calculator games mm-hmm. oh I look back I at those times a lot. those oh, are the yeah.
6: times
9: i started i started coding again um, nice I picked up uh i i started uh, learning C sharp since we're working in unity. The, the rust came off pretty quick. You know, I still, yeah. I still, I'm not as far along as I should, but it was definitely like, I'm like, man, there's an alternate universe where some of the new computers better was like, why are you guys programming for graphing calculators? Just make, you know, program in Python, make computer games, pick up C+, you know, C++. Yeah. It's like graphing calculators were a kind of a waste of time.
1: But, <laughs> <laughs> but still. But still like, learned a lot, though. Yeah, you learned a lot. And I don't know if you subscribed to Electronic Gaming Monthly Um, but I, I remember this article that still has stuck with me about like how how to be a game designer and how to get jobs that way. Hmm. And one of the pieces of advice was like, show people what you can do with the least amount of materials. Mm -hmm. And essentially like, if you can make a game on a graphing calculator, that's really cool. Like that's a good step into Mm -hmm. any sort of creative job in a way.
9: Yeah. Like yeah have those have those limitations yeah that
1: makes, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's something we saw
9: with a lot of like a, a, mis, a, a road that we saw a lot of people accidentally go down when we started doing VFX was that we specialized in um, doing uh, production effects, which means we were, we were doing any CG effects we were doing we were comping them into real shots, and we found that a lot of people would start doing like tutorials for a 3D program like Blender or 3Ds max or something they'd just think, Oh, I'm gonna make like a little Pixar short. And the problem is is that the amount of work that goes into a full CG short is so tremendous when every pixel is coming out of the computer compared to when you could shoot ninety five percent of the pixels with your camera and have just five percent of the pixels have to come out of the computer and get rendered in, that was a much a much better like path of least resistance as far as like actually getting a complete product that would tell a story that you could show somebody. Yeah.
1: Well, Brandon, uh, yeah, it's it's fun talking to you because um, I don't get to see you too often. But yeah, I mean, you've I'm obviously been a a big creative influence on my life, and so I'm glad. I still remember the days of like walking around in elementary school, and we'd just like riff on ideas back and forth, like while everyone else was playing kickball or something. Mm-hmm. Like video game ideas. Film ideas, whatever.
9: Yeah, that's that's where it starts. Um, I mean, that question comes up a, a lot where people ask about you know creativity and how do you come up with ideas, and unfortunately, the best answer I've been able to come up with is is a difficult one. It's it it takes a lot of practice, and that practice, I don't even know if you can successfully start practicing as an adult. I've I've never tried myself. I I assume I assume you can. You probably but. As with everything, it's easier to learn things as a kid. And so we were fortunate enough, for whatever reason, genetics, nature, nurture, who knows, you know, but we are put in an environment where we were encouraged to be creative from early on. And, I don't know, we grew up in Minnesota, and Minnesota seemed like it was a place that very much lent itself to coming up with your own ways to have fun. And it was a, seemingly the tail end of a time, too, where... Kids were allowed a little more freedoms. Not as much like our parents always said, you know, like we, we never yeah. had as many freedoms as our parents did. But in hindsight we had a lot more freedoms you got than away it seems with like current <laughs> kids do. I got away <laughs> you with You got a lot.
1: away with a lot of stuff. I blew up my yard I, a lot. Yeah. I was not quite as bold back then. I pushed the envelope in terms of
9: my, my flame throwers and flamethrowers and explosions and all for good cause though. I just wanted to make movies with them. Yeah. You know? But uh, but yeah, so creat- yeah, creatively, it's like it's just, it's uh, a practice every day, and uh, we were fortunate enough that we started it, without even knowing what we were doing. We started practicing it from you know age four, age five, and started making things. And yeah, for whatever reason, rather than following the instructions on Legos, you made a, made your own castles, you know, <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and that laid the seed. And then practicing every day for decades, and suddenly you get you get it's a skill that you can evolve, and so people who are listening feel like they didn't start doing that early age start now you know and the fruit will pay off 20 years from now yeah <laughs> it's like but i don't know how you rush it you know <laughs> yeah you, you yeah have like
1: and you and you have it's harder when you're an adult too i think because we have very highly des- developed critical brains versus yeah. like when you're a kid you could make something and you'd probably be super happy with it no matter what it mm-hmm. was. But yeah, people our aged and older probably have kind of gotten into the idea that like, well, this is good art and I'm so far away from that. <laughs> like yeah. it's hard to stay motivated sometimes. I think that's the hard, yeah, that's that the, the worst thing is the
9: pretension, you know, is the, the, uh, the concept of, This thing is pretentious and this other one is good art, and like, and who's to define what is what? And it's like, and that fear of being pretentious shuts down so many people's ideas before Mm -hmm. they even get off the ground, you know? Like, I think that people don't want to, they're afraid to put themselves out there, you know, with a a statement about what they think is good, because if they made it, they must think it's good. So, therefore, Mm -hmm. you're inviting yourself to be judged. But so, yeah, kids are lucky in that they don't think like that no one's, mm-hmm. no one's gonna judge your lego castle you know <laughs> so <laughs> yep
1: so you just you just build and build and build it was cool to find out that you had fulfilled a make-a-wish for a kid oh like that seems like the pinnacle of like you are doing something so cool but what what did you talk to that kid about that was a, yeah that was a weird that was an interesting Time yeah
9: we got we got uh, so a couple of years back we got contacted by Make uh, A Wish, and a nice kid had used his wish his one wish for his whole life to come out and spend the day with us. Um, he wanted to come through our studio, wanted to hang out, and uh, wanted to go play video games at Dave and Buster's with us. And so that's exactly what we did. But it's yeah it's a it's a weird experience because much like for all of his friends and family, it invites you too to be like wish for anything you know <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like you're talking about one of the few things on this earth because every kid heard about make a wish when they were a kid and they all think about what they and even as an adult I mean, it doesn't really exist for adults but it's like even as an adult you think like because it's the closest thing to magic almost the closest thing to magic right but yeah no we talked about uh so he his he had a condition where um i forget what it's called uh but the uh congenitive like a, a problem with his bones where his bones would were very brittle and so he'd broken his bones you know hundreds of times like gym class run for try to jump to catch a ball and and leg breaks you know like just just terrible terrible by most people's standards a terrible way to go through a childhood for sure but so yeah talked to him about what we did show him all the equipment you know stuff that he'd never see otherwise and uh he showed some of the stuff that he'd made and it was it was cool he was you know he was right on track for his age in terms of making things and yeah, so it was an interesting, interesting experience. Cool.
1: Well, Brandon, it was fun hanging out. We got to play skee ball mm-hmm. earlier today. And Charlie beat me by by ten points. <laughs> yeah, we played five games. Five games came
9: down to. I won two. He won yep. two. And then the last game, I threw my last ball, and I was up by thirty. And then, and then he, I got a forty to be up by thirty. He threw his last ball
1: and hit a forty to go up by ten. Yeah. Closest to game so. of basketball get. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, great talking to you, and good Absolutely. luck with everything in the future. Hey, I'm glad I could do it, and
9: uh, and you're going, you're you're fulfilling the dream. To you're going my, to my uh, my dream
1: to go to Australia. Going yeah. to Australia yep. finally.
9: Absolutely. that's great. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, it's crazy. I mean, the things that the, uh, the you know that the internet has enabled in terms of you know you very similarly you know you made this podcast and found an audience of people and then now you're able to cap it off with the, with the trip around and so it's just like yep. and no one had to green light it that's the, that's what's important There's no one no one ever you never had to pitch it and have somebody be like that's a good idea I'll pay for that and I'll yeah. put it on my network you know it's like yeah, no you just do it
1: yeah well thanks Brandon absolutely You just moved here, like, not too long ago, right? I did. I moved uh, from Berkeley, California, in the Bay
10: Area about two months ago. Is it going okay so far? It's going pretty well. It's, it's a definite adjustment moving from pretty much anywhere to Los Angeles, uh, just because Los Angeles has a very unique... It creates a certain sort of... Um, Lifestyle that's... Uh, evolves a, ra- a lot around... You know, figuring out how to... How to get places... Um, because of, you know... The the sprawl and driving... and Just kind of the... The pace of living here... Especially if you're doing something... That's tangential to entertainment... Um, there's just uh, a lot of people...
1: To meet... And a lot of things to do, so... Mm-hmm. So... So people know you better by the name Disaster Peace. And you were on the show a couple uh, year ago or a little more than that. Two years ago? Maybe. Yeah, probably. And we talked a lot about your music from Fez. Mm-hmm. So I'm really excited to talk to you about stuff you've done since then. Um, you just did the score for It Follows, the movie. Not just but well, yeah. oh, yeah, that was a while ago, I guess yeah, that was
10: like that was uh I did that in two thousand and fourteen, Oh. and it it so came out early two thousand fifteen,
1: okay, so it has been a
10: while since it's been it's
1: been a hot minute, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but the score for it follows, I thought was really cool and invented for a horror film, like especially the the main cue for like when the monster. Kind of thing is after people Mm -hmm. Um, so like the tracks Heels and Old Maid
10: Seen a lot of horror, I kind of had to pull from the more sort of nebulous pop culture references that I think are kind of omnipresent when it comes to horror. And so for me, that was um, uh, the Psycho theme. You
6: know? oh.
10: So it was kind of using that as like a starting point. And there's something in there too where I was trying to get it to sound a little bit like an alarm clock because there's something weird about those like old alarm clocks had this very like particular shrill kind of dissonant sound that were just like oh like you had to turn it off because you couldn't possibly sleep through it It it's just too painful
1: Was this like one of the first big films you had done? It was the First feature I'd ever done, and so you know
10: there was a pretty significant amount of learning. The film had to be scored really quickly. Basically, scored it in three or four weeks. Um, There was a temp score for the film that uh, it used music from Fez. That used music from (laughs) Fez, but it also used music from you know a lot of other sources um, from people like Penderecki and John Cage and John Carpenter. Johnny Greenwood um, I think Apex Twin I was just I was just talking to the editor the other day and he he told me that there was Apex Twin in there I was like oh I didn't even know that Hmm. Um, it was a positive experience actually to come in and you know listen to a scene with temp score and then try to distill that down into an idea and forget the temp score and then you know build it back up just with that idea in mind and um, trying to create new pieces of music based on my old music, like music from Fez, that was really difficult. That was probably the hardest
1: thing that I had to do. Huh. yeah, it was interesting because when I, when I listened to it, I could like kind of pick out probably which tracks they attempted with too. but I, I thought that was cool because it's like kind of this like alternate reality Fez
10: yeah, I think at the time I was pretty I was frustrated with some of the pieces because they're one in particular is this track J. Um, which is very, very similar to "Forgotten" from the Fez soundtrack, and that 's because I, I had written something else that I was kind of following the same creative process for everything where you know I, I distilled, it, distilled down the temp track into an idea and then tried to create something new, and so that 's what I did for that as well. And it was different, and um, I thought it was working well, but but um, David had a really strong case of temp Love, like he really loved the Forgotten track, which was in the temp score. We didn't have a lot of time, so I didn't have time to do a bunch of different versions. I tried a couple things and he really just kept pushing me towards the old thing, so um, at the end of the day I I pretty much ended up taking that old, the, the Fez song and like changing the notes and not a whole lot else to be honest. <laughs> I think I dialed down the bit crusher and, and tried to come up with uh, uh, an equally interesting corp- like progression with totally new notes, but the, the pacing, the, the timbres are all pretty mm-hmm. much the same.
1: I wonder how often that happens to composers, where they get their own music temped in before. I, I'm, it's, pretty,
10: it's pretty weird, but I, I do think that it probably happens with, you know, because temping is something that's, it's like an epidemic in linear media. It happens so frequently, and it's gotten to the point where people are temping. The music that they're using to temp with was music that was built on a, a temp from a previous project, which was probably built on a temp. From a previous, mm. so we're getting this yeah. like weird, like I'm... super narrow. Yeah, I mean, even some scores I think are pretty good. Like Mad Max was super temp, but uh, you know, I don't. I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing. I just it, it matters what you do with that information, because as a creative process, working from a temp is really interesting, and I'm th- one of the areas that really keeps me motivated and, and interested in projects is the creative process and like always riffing on that and trying to find the unique way that every project kind of pushes me to, to do things in a different way um, and so you know that, that experience was, was new for me and, and interesting Do you have other film scoring projects coming up for that? Yeah I'm working with David Robert Mitchell on another film
1: it's called Under the Silver Lake
10: and it's in pre-production right
1: now. Do you get in on that filming process at all or
10: like? Yeah, I mean, what, what's really cool about this time around is that I'm involved a lot earlier in the process. Um, and so I get to go to meetings and talk about some of the different scenes where we have music and, and how we're using the music. And I'll, I'll be able to work alongside Julio, the editor this time, which I think will be really beneficial for both of us. I know he's really excited about having music to cut to, because normally he would cut the temp. Well he would he actually he'll cut first without te- without music and then he'll he'll add music to, to refine it. But in in this case, like, you know, when he'll be like cutting during, you know, whenever he gets dailies from the shooting, you know, he'll be cutting and I can kinda come in right behind him and give him rough stuff to work with.
1: Cool. Um, what style are you going for?
10: This film is kind of hard to explain. It's like uh, it's like an L.A. noir set a couple years back. And um, it has a lot of different threads. So the soundtrack will have a lot of different kinds of music in it. So we're planning to work with an orchestra for one section. There'll probably be some synth work. There'll be some rock band instruments. Um, there'll be some 8-bit stuff. For a very particular reason. Hmm. Um, okay. <laughs> um, and there's also there's also a bit of um, arrangement work that I'll get to do. On like, you know, other people's songs.
1: Oh, which cool. Which will be fun. Like arranging for the orchestra? Or just... Um, I
10: think there's potential that it'll be some small ensemble stuff. Where I'll be doing arrangements of other, like, old songs. Cool. Um, and piano, too.
1: Cool. So... You released your Hyperlight Drifter album not too long ago. I've just watched that game, but it looks really cool. And (laughs) your music, like, it was interesting, like how you framed it, that it was kind of like the end of the Fez trilogy in a way, or I can't remember how you said it, but like Fez. I
10: think I was saying it was like a spiritual successor to Fez for me. Sure. In certain ways. Um, it's a very different game, but it has similar themes. And for me, it seemed right from the beginning, it was very clear that it was an opportunity to kind of build on some of the things I'd done in Fez, but do something different at the same time. The music is much more understated in general. Um, it, it's actually more, I would say it's more dynamic, which is something I think I kind of, I mean, I started on Hyperlight before It Follows, then I think the experience of doing it follows gave me some new ideas about vocabulary. And so, you know, after that, I feel like I pushed the, the dynamic range of the soundtrack more. And so there's some really sparse, quiet stuff, and then there's some really kind of overbearing music, especially towards the end of the game. more of a cinematic quality than Fez which I think was more like iconic melody type tracks
1: yeah yeah I I noticed that as I was listening to the soundtrack by itself like it, it was much more atmospheric and not as many melodies but then seeing the game played it was like the sound effects actually it, it complements that really well I thought and it's like that seemed to fill in the sonic gaps, maybe? That
10: yeah, I mean, the di- one of the differences between Fez and Hyperlite is that Hyperlight has combat, so there kind of needed to be more sonic space for those sounds. And so that contributed in some ways to the level of atmosphere in the game. Uh, there's a lot of atmosphere in the soundtrack. There's a lot of There are a lot of sections where the music just... Stops and it kind of withers away and lets you breathe, and then there's just ambience, like mm. wind or, or you know different kinds of ambient sounds, um, and so that was a very intentional choice to try to you know use ambience as another way to kind of paint over the the game um, and and to mix things up. Yeah,
1: like how much did you have a say in like where that would happen, where the music would cut out?
10: I mean, I
1: worked pretty closely with Alex, the
3: creative director,
10: but it was, I mean, it was all my responsibility. Um, during the course of development, I had, I had amassed like a folder of piano sketches, probably like 100 or 120 piano sketches, some of which I came up with during development and some, some of which I came up with earlier or in times when I wasn't thinking about hyperlight. They just kind of fit the general vibe of the game. kind of like impressionistic music as soundscape kind of vibe yeah except for like the boss tracks which are more
1: a lot more rhythmic and and rhythmic yeah shelf I really like and it's got some really interesting like phrasing to it I I can't remember what the time signature is or anything but Mm -hmm. it's like the melody phrase ends like just kind of lilting
10: It's actually one of Alex's least favorite tracks, and it was one of my favorites. (laughs) It's kind of, yeah, it's a different kind of thing, you know, it's, um, I originally wrote that for the, the kind of the main town area of the, of the east. It's kind of like a water temple land, and, um, it didn't quite work in the flow, and, you know, the east was kind of the hardest area of the game for us to, to build, and, the music you know was completely informed by the flow of the, of the levels just figuring out you know how, how do we build the music up to when you get to this area how do we keep the momentum going so the water shelf was was um, a piece that I wrote very early in the process and, and I liked it a lot but it kind of it kind of gave this vibe of oh the overworld of, of this water area, that has like lots of running water is actually a really chill place. But then going you know later we went back and I added a bunch of like running water sounds and I was like, oh, I get it. So this needs to be more consistent like in the sense that the, the, the music can be more sustained. And so that's where the, I think it's called the, it's the Cascades track. Mm. Ended up using that there. try to do is, is explore different qualities of, of that water area. And so there's like four or five different water type tracks that some of them are similar, but some of them are pretty different from each other. Like there's one called um, the Refiners Fire, which I mean it, there is fire, but it, it still kind of has, is still kind of this like watery riff.
1: The guest. Um, so the last composer I interviewed, Jake Monaco, asked if you could be part of any film, past or present, what would that be?
10: That's a super tough question. You know, these kind of questions I generally don't answer because I don't, I don't have like any sort of like remorse or like, oh, I wish I was involved with that or.
6: Um,
1: I, when I was trying to answer that in my head, There Will Be Blood came to mind instantly. Uh, and if, if nothing else, like I, the score is so great that Johnny Greenwood did for that. But at the same time, I would be curious to like see what I would have done with that. Because yeah. it is such a weird movie. And yeah, I guess if I hadn't had his score in my head what would I have done in that situation
10: yeah and that film the score is cool because it really kind of it really kind of places you in that environment that landscape and kind of the emotional scenario yeah um yeah I don't know I mean I was just when you said there will be blood I was thinking of no country for old men oh yeah I always got those mixed
1: up which really has
10: an (laughs) interesting treatment I love the treatment I love the treatment
1: As in almost no music, right? There's,
10: like, almost no music at all. Yeah. And it works really well. I feel like I have to answer the question to keep the chain... Or the chain (laughs) will be broken. It's true. Yeah, you can't... It's, like, a question that was, like, specifically designed for me to not answer (laughs) based on me. Uh,
11: um, Well,
10: actually, thinking back, it would have been, like, kind of interesting if, like the first Star Wars movie was done with a synth score instead of an orchestral score. Oh. And what that would have, <laughs> how that would have changed everything.
1: Yeah. For the better or the worse? Or just different, I guess.
10: It would just be different. I mean, I mean, that started a trend for a while where, of this kind of Gustav Hust Holstian mm-hmm. sound that definitely lasted for a while. Um, yeah, I don't know that would be cool
1: <laughs> yeah <laughs> they would have saved a lot of money I mean <laughs> I guess um, alright so I need a question from you for the,
10: the next, next person. person and I don't you won't he, he didn't know who it
6: okay
9: what's an instrument
10: or an arrangement of instruments that you'd like to write for that you haven't written for
1: cool yeah. Um, so when we last talked, you were talking about doing some more singer songwriter type things. Mm-hmm. Um, have you gone anywhere with those or kept. No. No?
10: No, I haven't. Uh, I've been trying to play them now and then just to keep them fresh, but some of them I'm already forgetting. But I have recordings of them, so. Okay. But the plan was, was definitely to make a record, and that's still the plan. It just hasn't quite happened yet. And I would like to do it soon because I know that the longer I go, the further away I get from kind of the original intent of those songs. Some of them are especially hard to play now just because of what they meant at the time. Some of them are, like, pretty sappy. And it's, like, hard to channel some of those emotions. Like, of a breakup for like a breakup or something when it's like know, it was like years ago now it's like it's tough but um, one of these
1: days yeah I hate to say that again <laughs> that's what that's probably what I said last time probably but that's okay I mean <laughs> yeah I struggle with that too with, um, especially lately like there was a while where I was doing more singer songwriter stuff um, and then lately it's been mostly just like instrumental yeah but I feel like there's not as many things at my age that I am as interested in writing about, like, from an emotional perspective, but maybe that's just I haven't done it enough, probably. So. Yeah, I mean, I think you can write about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Well, part of this tour, what I've been doing is, like, co-writing songs with guests uh, based on, like, Challenges that my Kickstarter backers put forward. Okay. Um, so I don't know if you would be interested, but I have a couple ideas that I have to write songs for. Okay. Uh, one of them. (laughs) But if you don't have time. No, no, I'm I'm
10: down. Let's do it.
1: Um. So. So one of the ideas was from my backer Court Stratton, who lives in LA. And he he wanted me to write a Beach Boys-influenced song with backing harmonies. Um, okay. What are the other ones? Maybe we can combine them. There's there's another one. My aunt, Margie, uh, asked me to write a song based on Hope. Okay, you can combine those two. That could be... yeah. I have a acoustic guitar. Okay. I was, as I was in the car, I was like trying to recall like as many Beach Boys songs as I could to get my mind in that mode. And I kind of like the, I kind of like their songs that are a little slower. Mm-hmm. Like I know Court who gave this suggestion probably was thinking like surf rock, mm-hmm. but I kind of like this their songs that are more like, don't cry put your head on my shoulder. You know, like oh, like Caroline or something? Yeah. Yeah. Sounds Should we pull out the guitar and try something? Oh, that's the same guitar I have. Maybe Martin three-quarter size, yeah. You're the second one on this tour who's had the same guitar as me. My guitar teacher, when I was... One of my guitar teachers at Berkeley recommended it to me. Oh, and you're a lefty? Mm-hmm.
10: Wow. I played this
1: not that long ago, too. Sounds like a good Beach
10: Boys chord. (laughs) It's a minor 7 chord. It's an A minor 7. I
6: don't
10: know. Yeah. <laughs> Something about hope.
11: Mm. Hoping for the day that the... There you go. <laughs>
1: Yeah. Thank you.
11: Yeah. Okay. (laughs) You'll be my darling forever.
1: (laughs) Got
10: a little song there. Yeah. Choose a
1: bridge to be a song, song. It could, but. Right now it's a ditty. It's a ditty. Yeah. We'll we'll keep it as, as, as a ditty. So, let's see. Can we do this all the way through? Oh, from the beginning? Maybe Just see if we can figure it
11: out. Open for the day that you will come to find me. Let it be real soon, darling. darling. forever, hoping for the day that you will come to find me. Let it be real soon, darling, darling, I will be your darling forever.
1: that was fun yeah (laughs) well thanks so much rich for taking the time to talk again
5: Here's a question for you, Jeff. Yeah, Charlie, what's that? When does filmmaking for you become not a hobby, and when it's not a hobby and it's more a professional thing, is it still fun for you?
4: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Right now, I'm kind of in a cocoon, as it were. I'm kind of on hiatus from directly pursuing film things. Uh, and the, But this question has been kind of a thing in my mind for the past year two years. What is filmmaking to me? Um, I, I think it's a terrible, terrible uh, job. <laughs> um, like, it's really difficult to make a living. I mean, especially short films, but I also feature films. So, I mean, it takes a lot of work. It's, like, definitely it comes out of passion. It comes out of, like, this thing needs to exist, right? And I think I'm better off emotionally and psychologically if I don't think I'm going to make money as a filmmaker. In the traditional, like, you make a movie on pretty much on spec, right? Like, unless you have funding, you're just kind of making a movie and hoping to sell it. And that's a lot of work to hope to want to sell something.
5: Were you at a point where you thought, like, oh, this is going to be my career and how I make my living?
4: I, I guess I defaulted to that. Where it was like, all right, I, I'm good at video stuff. I'll just keep doing video stuff. And so it's like, where do you get money? So it's like corporate work, commercial work, uh, that kind of thing. It, it, just kinda, it was just kind of like me following the path from moment to moment, like just in this general direction. Like right now, I'm trying to be a little bit more deliberate about what I do. Um, yeah. Uh, I don't... I don't know. I don't know, Charlie. I don't know. <laughs>
6: <That's> <laughs> Did I answer your last
5: question? That's okay. Uh, yeah. I. I think I'm at that point, too, in a way. Like, I don't know what's going to be next. I don't know what other things I'll be passionate about in a year or two years. So that's what makes it sometimes harder to plan for the future. Yeah. For me.
4: Are you still passionate about music?
5: I am.
4: I am, but... If you you made sufficient... Amount of money, right? Or maybe even ample amounts of money. Uh, And we're able to compose nonstop as a job. Would that appeal to you?
5: Uh, I don't know. Just my personality. I I think I need, like, breaks from it more than other people. Well, maybe not more than other people, but more than, like, a professional film composer here in L.A. Why do you need breaks? Mmm, that's a good question. Maybe d- do not need breaks. Yeah, maybe I, I don't know. Maybe I just need to force myself to compose more often, and then it'll become more natural, and then I could turn out, like, 15 minutes of music a week. Yeah. But I, I was actually kind of getting some inspiration for album projects that I could work on. I just still love the idea of concept albums. And even if I don't follow through with the concept completely, I do want to try starting another concept album at some point, I think.
4: Does that make you money?
5: No. (laughs) No, I don't see any album making me money unless it's licensable for films.
4: So, okay, so let's go back to uh composing as a job. Let's say you could make as much money as you need by composing. Would you like would that life appeal to you?
5: Well, that kind of goes back to my original question to you, which was when does your hobby become a profession?
6: Yeah.
5: Um and is it still fun? And I think yeah. almost for me once I've achieved the point of making money, it's almost like once I get to that point, it's not as fun anymore. I don't know what that tells you about my psyche, but
4: <laughs> no, I think I think there's just like every average person who has who runs into this uh, schism, internal schism of like I want to do this creatively but i feel like that i'm impeded by the pressure of performing to someone else's standard yeah uh, it's it's about it's no longer about you and it becomes about the service to someone else
5: yeah i i think it's part that but at the same time like i actually do enjoy doing film scores for other people now right. that i think about it Maybe it's that, like, certain things, the excitement is in, like, building up your business or whatever to the point where you can do that thing. Yeah. Like, I got to the point where I was getting paid for doing some audio work, and then I kind of felt like, all right, I learned this skill. I could do this thing. But now it's not quite as exciting.
4: Yeah. How does one make it more
5: exciting? Hmm. I don't know. I I think you just, you have to, like, keep learning. Yeah. Which I think I sometimes just get complacent. Once I crack the main code to doing something, um, in a way I feel like the Renaissance man or whatever is more my style, in a way. Like, I want to... do it. Keep, keep doing different things.
7: Yeah, I, I, I share that.
4: Uh, I feel like a Renaissance and myself. I'm gonna, i to learn a lot of things. I wanna synergize, use that really lame term, uh, all these different <laughs> things into something more than the sum of, or more than the parts themselves, right? Create a sum that is much greater, right? Uh, the inverse to how does one make it exciting? Question is how can one still work? When it's not exciting.
5: Yeah. That seems especially tough when you're a freelancer.
4: No.
6: Because
5: you you don't go into an office. You go, well, some people do, but I go to my desk that's like five steps away from my bed. Yeah. No. And it's like, oh, I could just go to sleep. Or push through and continue. Yeah. What do you do to keep working when it's not exciting anymore?
4: That's a great question. I'm going to reference uh, a couple things first that have been very influential in my thinking. There's a book by a guy named Callum Newport who talks about... Um, it's called, Be So Good They Can't Ignore You. And it talks about a career strategy where you focus on proactive learning to become the best uh, that you, you know, like, to keep learning, keep learning, and become the best. And whatever it is you do that you apply yourself to, eventually, even if you don't like it, you'll come to like it because you have developed skill at it. And so it Basically, it's an argument against following your passion. Following your passion is a poor strategy because many people don't even know what their passion is. And one, one develops passion by becoming really good at something. And huh. so, uh, so that's like just fundamentally an interesting thing, right? Like, follow your passion. What does that even mean, right? Well, apply yourself, work at something, learn something, become. The best, right? I mean, put put in the hours, and you'll begin to have a deeper understanding, and then you will find a connection to what you do is. Uh, I'm gonna jump to uh, another thing. So my new favorite podcast is called the Jocko Podcast. It's a retired Navy SEAL talking about war, talking about self, uh, he wouldn't say self-improvement, uh, but talking about becoming one's best self. Um, one of his main things is he talks about discipline equals freedom. And so, which almost sounds ironic, right? Or like, like an oxymoron. How does discipline equals freedom? But... By showing up day after day, applying yourself to the work, you will build freedom for yourself and opportunity for yourself. And you'll expand your capabilities. He often talks about, like, the basic discipline is waking up early every day, no matter what. And he wakes up at, like, 4.30 every morning. And he, you know, just, and he just gets stuff done and be disciplined. And he often talks about, like, it's not, it doesn't matter if you're motivated or not. Show up and do the work anyway, hmm. and 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 you build freedom out of that. You build the life you want out of that.
5: Versus getting so, blown in the wind, kind of.
4: Yeah. Right. Uh, and I and I find that to be true with myself. If I don't feel like doing something right now, like like oh, this is not a good time. I don't feel like it. Well, that's, uh, when is a good time? Now is the good time. Do it now, right? If I don't want to do it, that means I should do it. Um, so I spring all that back in. You know, if the true, true path for Charlie is to do composing, I would imagine it's Charlie not doing anything but composing for six to eight hours a day until that, becomes a profitable thing for him, and then he just gets better and better and keeps raising his rate, and no matter what he does, he makes that music, and then he finds time elsewhere to be creative, you know, tell his uh, album stuff. Um,
5: yeah. Well, Swingy, I think this was a good talk. This This was a hard talk, I think, versus our other conversations so far that have been a little more floaty and fluffy about art (laughs) this is like get down to work that's how i feel here in la it's like just getting to work on composing yeah So, so that's the question i have to ask myself am i willing to do this every day for six hours to eight hours every day that's the question
3: It doesn't matter how much you know about implementation, or writing layers, or any of these kind of video game terms, none of that matters if you can't write music well. The first thing for me is always learning your craft. And it doesn't matter where the music is going, ultimately. This is when it's in your head and you're still thinking about it. You've got to know how to basically see it through completion, practically on your own these days, and have it stand on its own with everything else that's out there. plugins you have, I mean, sure, having the right reverb helps and everything. Uh, It really comes down to what's, what's in your head and what's in here, what's in your heart. And those two things are what make the best video game music, in my opinion. Talking about video game music, I'm just talking about music.
1: I'm here at the La Brea Tar Pits with Candy Emberly. Hello, and. We're just hearing some banjo music in the background, and the sound of bubbles in the tar pits. You probably can't really hear that, but anyways.
2: You probably can't smell it either. Yeah. It's, it's special. It's pretty
1: terrible, but... <laughs> and there's a really sad statue of uh, an elephant reaching out to its family members, but getting dragged into the pit.
2: It's uh, actually in the tar. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Uh, so, anyways, Candy, it's been awesome hanging out with you here in LA. It's
2: been awesome having you. Thanks yeah. for coming out to My Fair City.
1: Yeah. And that does it for this episode of Composer Quest. Uh, you can check out all the episodes at composerquest.com. And thanks again to Court Stratton, my Kickstarter backer, who sponsored this episode. So, with that, let's listen to some Bubbles of the Tar Pit
2: Bubbles and Banjo
1: okay that's not working oh oh i stuck. oh
6: i ruined it well
1: mostly traffic noise